Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. And find us on Facebook as well. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. And there you can click on the podcast tab, find all the fine NR podcasts, including this one right here. And of course, we direct you as well to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash political beats, where we ask you for your support to help the show stay ad free as it is right now. Uh, we have entry level for, for your support, some voting privileges, some special things every now and then. Mid-level for early access to our episodes and higher audio quality. And then our upper level, bestest friends in the whole wide world, that gives you the early access, the higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered episodes from the past, uh, Spotify playlists and more. All of that at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I got to tell you, I am feeling pretty good. I will admit that I have got a hunger to get out on the dance floor these days, you know, and it's hard to do it in these COVID eras. But I am going to get out there, and I'll tell you right now, Scott, I'm not going to stop till I get enough. Just be careful you don't burn the disco down. Jeff... I, well, I know I'm going to burn it out, not down. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest for today's episode is a Ph.D. candidate in American religious history at Stanford University, completing a dissertation on how religious po- politics influenced the rise of Andrew Jackson and the formation of the Democratic and Whig parties. His writings have appeared in the Washington Post, The Bulwark, The Hill, National Review, The Critic, and many other publications. He is also the host of his very own podcast, The Age of Jackson Podcast. And I'll specify, because of the theme of today's episode, that that is Andrew Jackson, Age of Jackson Podcast. You can find him on Twitter as well. He is Daniel Galata. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us here on Political Beats. It's a delight to be here, and I'll be jamming with the rest of you, I'm sure. We will point out, in case people are asking, yes, our first uh, Australian guest here on the program. Although, Daniel, correct me if I'm not uh, mistaken, you born Australian, uh, American by choice. Is that essentially it? That is correct. In fact, uh, you were there... um... Uh, a few, uh, was it last week or the week before last? Um, you were there on the anniversary of my American citizenship. Two That's years. Right. Yes. Congratulations. And uh, thanks, Thank for being you, a, sir. thanks for being a part of this great country. Uh, Daniel, we, uh, we turned the floor over to you. Oh, I guess I should first tell you. We're talking about the King of Pop today. We're talking about Michael Jackson uh, from, uh, from single-digit age uh, all the way through his teens, 20s, 30s. And older, there are some, man, there are so many angles to discuss when it comes to Michael Jackson. We will clear our throats on those here momentarily. This, this reminds me of the way that you introduced the Beatles, where you're like, do I really need to explain who this person is? It's the right. Beatles. Do I need, and of course, Michael Jackson ended up buying the Beatles songbook catalog. Yes, yes. <laughs> we don't need to explain to you who MJ is. He's MJ. He's the king of pop. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But we first give uh, Daniel Galata a chance to uh, explain his story to our listeners. Uh, tell them more about the Agent Jackson podcast. Tell them what you do. How did you get involved in, in what you're doing right now? 
Sure, I'd be delighted to do so. Um, basically, I started dating an American girl, and you know, the the logical thing to do was learn about American history and American religion, because you know that the chicks are into that. I'm told. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. great, great pickup lines at the bar. Hey, hey did you yeah, hear about yeah. the nullification crisis? <laughs> it works every time. Uh, no, honestly, I started dating her, then I got into American history. Um, and uh, we started dating and eventually you know, fell in love and I asked her to marry me and I decided to give up Australia. And in return, my wife said to me, my soon to be wife said, well, you're giving up your country. So whatever you want to do uh, for a living, we'll, we'll try and make that happen. Stupidly, I decided to be an academic, um, <laughs> which, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But uh, yeah, so... Um, I, I got bit by the American religious history bug hardcore at Yale, but it was at Yale where I learned about this guy in more detail called Andrew Jackson. And what fascinated me about him was one book I read absolutely detested and loathed the guy, basically called him, you know, a genocidal maniac who couldn't spell his own name. And the other books I read about him described him as a political genius, the spearhead of American democracy, and, you know, the figurehead behind the longest lasting political organization today, the Democratic Party. So I was just kind of fascinated. How the hell do you get such wildly different interpretations? And from there, what intrigued me was how people talked about religion and politics. Um, becoming from Australia, some Americans would say to me, like, well, we've got two major political parties, one's religious, one's not really religious, um, you know, referring to the Republican Party as the more religious party. And I was watching the Democratic Party and I was like, what do you mean these guys are not religious or less religious? They can't not talk about God. And coming from Australia, where, you know, we don't talk about sex, religion or politics at the dinner table, that was a really jarring experience. So that kind of started the germ of, of an idea to figure out um, how did religion inform the birth of the two-party system that we uh, know, love, hate, you know, stuck with today? Daniel is with us today, as uh, I mentioned, to talk about Michael Jackson, an artist who needs no introduction whatsoever, only the author of the largest selling album in world history. And uh, uh, what, 12 uh, number one songs, something, uh, something along those lines. Uh, just a, a massive star. And one that we'll talk about this, but but some of the side uh, stories at this point perhaps even overshadow the music. And so part of what we do here in the program is to sort of focus things back on the musical output. Uh, more on that in a bit. But we turn the floor over to Daniel to tell us why he loves Michael Jackson, how he got into him, and why people should care about this music produced by the king of pop. Daniel. Well, it's kind of funny the way you introduced the podcast saying like Michael Jackson needs no introduction, but I'm only in my early 30s, so I caught the kind of tail end of Michael Jackson. And by the time I was coming of age, um, you know, 1993, uh, the allegations starting at 1993, and then History comes out, um, and uh, Invincible being the final album. So all this was going on in my youth. And what was funny was... I probably knew Michael Jackson's songs um, as a kid and as a teenager, but I couldn't really identify them as a Michael Jackson record, perhaps. Not, not really, anyway. Like, you know, Thriller comes on on a movie or something like that, and it's like, oh, I like this song, but I, oh, this is Michael Jackson? Okay, that's cool. 
but for me the caricature this the the joke um you know south park scary movie um all the parodies of uh, michael jackson wacko were, they jacko were my, right yeah. wacko jack oh ten thousand percent so that was like my first introduction to michael jackson in a sense so i had to i was one of those people who had to like rediscover him i don't care what you talk I can kind of think of is your first introduction to Marlon Brando is like, you know, tail tail end, you know, Hollywood tabloid fat Marlon Brando, um, you know, failing art, you know, failing artist kind of thing. And the then island you, of like, Dr. And then, Moreau. Yes, Dr. Yes, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, really? Like, this is the famous Marlon Brando my parents tell me about? So it's, it, or, or, you know, that, um, you know, you like, you kind of know what the Godfather is, but, you know, you've only seen Jack you know, in terms of um, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola. So that was kind of my experience with uh, Jackson. So after Jackson dies, I go to college. And eventually um, what sort of raises my interest and my awareness of Jackson was um, honestly, it starts with um, Billie Jean and Thriller and really starting to like these singles would come on the radio. I was like, damn, this is like really catchy. This is really enjoyable stuff. And then a couple of years later, I picked, I decided to pick up off the wall and just listen to it from start to finish. And that was just like the beginning of the end, if you will. And I was just hooked from there on forward. And then you know, being an historian, we'll get into it when we get to Frilla, you know, kids these days. I couldn't fathom how popular and successful and influential this album was. You know, it's kind of the metrics alone <laughs> kind of seem unbelievable but they were real and it, it just baffled my mind. And it was one of those things, okay, can this album really live up to the hype? And I was just shocked that it did. <laughs> so yeah, that, like, that was the kind of the, the real bug for me. Um, and then, you know, when the allegations resurfaced, of course, with Nevi, um, throughout the years, it, it, it kind of piques my interest to, to go back to his discography and, um, you know, to find out, and we'll get into this, of course. I know I keep repeating myself. Jackson is one of those artists that is very self-aware. So even though, you, you know, we can focus on the music, but the man is very self-reflective about his about the tabloid nature and how divisive he is. So even that's, like, really striking to me, um, getting to him, his discography. But we'll get into all that. But it, it's it, it's hard to deny just how influential he is it, it, it's very similar to the beatles you can't deny the legacy of the man let me tell you this 
maybe one day I will acknowledge that there is something good about being old, but honestly, there's nothing good about being old. And of course, I'm not even that old. I'm 41. Scott and I are basically the same age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one virtue, I will say, about having been born in 1980 is that I came of age with MJ long before any of this stuff happened. He was just a part of our lives. And so like, I, I, I kind of, you know, I thought about, well, what, how am I going to explain? Like, what's the first time you got into Michael Jackson? I almost despair at it because it's just boring and pedestrian. If you were born in 1980, okay, you were two years old uh, or three when Thriller came out. And, uh, you know, from the moment that your brain was first capable of retaining thoughts, you remembered Beat It. You remembered Thriller. You remembered Billie Jean. This stuff was just there. I, I, I've used this 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 you know idea several times in the past, when especially when I'm talking about music that was popular during my childhood. It was ever present. It was like the police was hmm. ever present. It was like you know, every breath you take, Thriller, Beat It. These are songs that were just a part of the landscape. You couldn't go to a pool party or a birthday party or a swim meet, or you couldn't go out to like you know, Chuck E. Cheese for that matter. I'm four years old going to Chuck E. Cheese, playing in the ball pit, picking up all sorts of horrible viruses that were probably worse than coronavirus for that matter. And uh, I, um, you know, you just heard this music. Michael Jackson dancing on those light-up squares on the music video for Billie Jean, turning into, like, a zombie and, like, doing, like, slick zombie dance moves on Thriller. Or, you know, even later, you know, bad. You know, you know, you know, working around in, like, was it, like, a parking garage or something like that, proving that he is truly bad, although he looks very not bad. Um, but the music is pretty great. Uh, he was a part of my adolescent life and one of the things that i've reflected on a lot as we've done these shows for four years now is how much my adolescent formation even though i went through a a phase where i aggressively rejected all of it uh when i went into high school um you know and i first discovered the beatles and then i became a a classic rock snob and then an art rock and post-punk snob uh you know and i threw all of that garbage from childhood away leaving childish things behind and then what you realize when you get a little bit older is that well you know 
the stuff that remains remains for a reason. And all of that formation that I'd received in the 80s, it really ended up kind of sculpting the person who I would end up being. And of course, all of that was pop and stuff that was played on MTV and VH1 or whatever, places like that. But it still stays with you. And Michael Jackson still stays with me for a number of reasons. The, the, the soap opera, the real life stuff, the scandals, the allegations of you know sexual abuse and all of that, I guess we'll have to address it. I actually have really kind of stayed away from it. I never have um, because I just don't think it really has much to do with the music. And unless, of course, you know, as Daniel pointed out, you know, Jackson's commenting on the tabloids. There's like songs like Leave Me Alone, which are explicitly about, you know, his relationship with the media. Um, but I'm reminded of this really great meme that goes around among music fans on Twitter these days, <laughs> which is, uh, and Scott probably knows the one I'm talking about mm-hmm. here, where it's like, there, you know, you, you've got like a crying person, you know, talking to another crying person. They're like, oh no, J.K. Rowling is a turf. Uh, she couldn't have written Harry Potter. And the other one's like, no, Harry Potter was written in our hearts. It was written by us. This can't be right. And then below it, there are the, these two sternly bearded men just like staring you know, back and forth at one another. The first one says, these are music nerds. And the first music nerd says, everything we love was made by bad people. The second music nerd says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way I feel about the Stones. I mean, God, you want to talk about like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards' various escapades or David Bowie for that matter? Uh, there, there are just tons and tons of these stories. And, you know, we kind of used to shove them under the carpet uh, in the rock music world is just sort of like boys will be boys and oh that's the way the scene works we don't do that anymore I also think that you know when it comes to someone like Jackson you just have to understand the world he grew up in uh, and the abuse that he suffered as a child and maybe the way that uh, again whether you accept that the allegations are true or not the way that victims can become victimizers. I don't know. I have really made it a point to not. I never watched that Leaving Neverland documentary. So like, I'm not going to sort of opine definitively on like, you know, oh, did he or didn't he? I don't know. And it's not that I don't care. It's that what I care about is the music. And all I know is that whenever I hear those strings go hit on Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, <laughs> I start and I'm the world's most non-dancing man in the world, I start moving. I, I, I gotta move, because it is just one of the most electrifying songs in the history of popular music.
what, what I was going to say is like, what's funny going back to dualities and Jacksons, I remember like, b besides Wacko Jacko, I remember when I was seven years old and history was coming out, which was my parents, the, I think it was the only Jackson album they owned because they liked all the hits. Mm -hmm. I remember the commercials with lightning striking helicopters and it's a giant freaking Michael Jackson statue clouded in fog of appearing for these searchlights. And it was like king of pop, like very. So like I, on the one hand, I grew up with Wacko Jacko, but I also grew up with the biggest like music sensation of their lifetime in, in a sense of, uh, you know, the statue. So like, again, it's that duality, you know, speaking of Jackson. So like, I, I'm, um, it's hard to ignore that, it, which is kind of fascinating. I think it adds to the fascination for me anyway. I, you know, Jeff mentioned understanding him through this lens of his childhood. I think that's important. And again, this is not a place to litigate many of those allegations against him or the evidence like Jeff. I, I did not watch Finding Neverland. I haven't taken it upon myself to try to judge the evidence. Even with... Uh, even without knowing all of that, you know, he's he's guilty of being exceedingly weird. Uh, there's no doubt yeah. about that through his life, and it, part of that does go back to childhood as well. So, Did he bring a, like a, uh, an orangutan or a chimpanzee with him to the Oscars at one point, or no, no, to the Grammys? I I can't remember if it was you know that he he, he had a pet monkey named yes. Bubbles. Yes, right. <laughs> the, the and, things that sort of bubble up from your own mm -hmm. mind. Uh, when you were like five, six years old, Michael Jackson has a pet monkey. And the Neverland Ranch and the animals and all that. I mean, it's all, you can read all about it. That the music, you know, I often think about sports from Huey Lewis as being the first album I really love. It, it might have been Thriller because I had Thriller on 8-track and uh, to the point where, you know, I knew where you had to flip between the tracks to find the song that you wanted to start and where, th where Thriller started and where uh, Human Nature started on, on the 8-track. I was listening to Thriller at a very young age. And something that I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on you know, based on the individual song, you know, we can't ignore the visual, um, uh, I guess to use the MTV phrase, the, you know, the video vanguard. Uh, that Michael Jackson was, how he used visuals, how important it all was, uh, what he wore, uh, the jackets, the moonwalk uh, at the at the Motown uh, ceremony, uh, the videos, the full. He worked with Scorsese and Coppola. Uh, 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 short and films. Landis. They and Landis. They were called. They were called right. short films, short, short music films. videos. That's right, short films, twenty-two minutes, eighteen minutes. The the ones for, the one for bad, the one for thriller. I watched, you know, MTV would play, the, you know, the making of Thriller, the making of the Thriller video. I watched that, I don't even know how many times, watching them put those yellow contact lenses into Michael Jackson's eyes as he turned into the werewolf at the end. I watched that over and over again. And, uh, you know, to talk about Thriller is to talk about, uh, you know, w w we often go through and say, you know, what else is there to say about X album, right? We've had these classic albums on the show. Uh, we'll have to find some new things to say about Thriller here in a bit. But I think there is still lots to say about stuff like Off the Wall. I think there's still lots to say about even Bad and I think there's and, actually and lots to say about Thriller. I, th I think one of the funny things about Michael Jackson's sort of celebrity, the, the tabloid stories and all of that, is that in a you know, really unfair way, it's eclipsed 
the actual quality of these records, which yeah. is why I yeah. said what I said is like, listen, set all that aside. Just like look beyond the Rawlsian veil of ignorance. This is incredible music. <laughs> and, you know, well, it's, you it's, can, what's interesting with that, with the reevaluate, like I didn't get to when when Dangerous and Invincible came out, they had some pretty scathing reviews um, at from certain corners of the music industry but i wasn't aware of them so i've come to dangerous and invincible liking them off the bat and at the, when i'm first being introduced to them apparently i'm guessing your guys's generation and others um they're reevaluating those albums saying you know what actually this is actually quality music <laughs> about now now who wants to to sort of take us from the jump it, it could be me i i can give you give you the rundown of uh you know baby michaels this is the way i always call him i always refer to him from these early years as baby michael and of course <laughs> you can't talk about michael jackson in his earliest career without talking about two things motown and the jackson five now motown as a record label was wasn't on its I, I think the term last legs is not right here but they were no longer the like the hurricane level commercial right. force it wasn't a had it wasn't a factory at that point it wasn't a factory at that point and one of the reasons for that is that a lot of its like great artists had begun to sort of buck against that factory formula they were rebelling uh, you know, some Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder in like 69, 70, thereabouts, where you're saying like, no, 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 no. I'm not just going to do this chop them out crap anymore. I've got to, I'm an artist. I have my own artistic ambitions. I'm going to make the music that I feel that I want to make and I want it to represent me. Um, so those folks are leaving the stable. What's their last big grab for the bat, brass ring and cotton? You know, you can't get more successful if you're going to make one last stab. Uh, for Motown, it's the Jackson 5. It's a group that comes out of Gary, Indiana. It's north, uh, western Indiana, right basically over the border from Chicago. Uh, and uh, it's a tough town, actually. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of, like, urban blight. It's, it's, it, it's not the nicest city in the world. Um, but this guy, Joe Jackson... This is a showbiz family. He had all these kids. It's almost, he reminds me, Joe Jackson is sort of like, gosh, I hope this isn't unfair. He's the Black Murray Wilson 
uh, Murray Wilson, of course, being the father of the, the, the Wilson brothers for the Beach Boys. And it, you know, Murray Wilson is legendarily like a horrible person. Abused the kids and you know sold their songwriting royalties out from under them. Didn't understand them. We covered all of this in our Beach Boys episodes. Um, Joe Jackson was a guy who who had you know five kids and oh my God, these kids just had song, had singing voices just like angels. All right, and uh, all of them were guys. All of them were little boys. And Janet came later. Um, and so he's like, you know what? We're going to put together like a traveling review. And so like he hawked them up and down the entire upper Midwest and, you know, various other sort of R&B and soul venues, you know, from 1967, you know, for three straight years doing it, uh, you know, and Michael actually didn't even join it, I believe, until a little bit later because, you know, you can't have a three-year-old in the <laughs> band. But like the, he was, he was, you know, by the time he was like 10, you know, yeah, he was a member of the group. And that is when Motown finally had already been aware of them, but first signed them. And they decided when they signed them and said, we're going to put an album out, they put the biggest concerted effort into making sure these people would be pop chart monsters that any label has ever done, at least successfully. Because one of the most singular factoids about the Jackson 5 is that the first four singles they ever released all went to number one on the Billboard charts. Three of those four are sung by Michael Jackson, who at that time I think was 11 years old, right? And he has that voice. And you know them from heart. You know I want you back. I guarantee you know I want you back. I know that you know ABC, one, two, three. You know that song. You know I'll be there. You know these beautiful songs that were literally, the songwriting credit goes to, quote, the corporation, mm -hmm. which is Barry Gordy and, like, you know, his team of songwriters all getting together, saying, like, you know, don't bore us, get to the chorus, give me the hooks, everything. We're going to make it as perfect as possible. And I got to say, like, you know, those singles are, you know, they, they're indelible. They will never die. gotta say like for for motown product because they were still in that mode where it's like you got the hits and then here's some you know stuff from our songwriting groups that other guys have already covered or whatever i really love this early jackson five stuff i basically have a soft spot for motown in general and soul and r&b i love this early era and of course this is when you get that that perfect pure almost indescribably pure voice 
of Michael's. You know, no one had ever heard anything like this before. It was it was it was one of those things where you 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 were tempted to treat it like a novelty act, like oh yeah, here's like a ten year old singing. You know, ha ha ha. What does he know? You know, it's it, it's exploitation, right? And of course, there there was an exploitative aspect to it behind it all. But God, the music is still so good, and even at this incredibly young age, it is remarkable to listen to Michael Jackson as a singer, a prepubescent singer. You know, probably he's never you know held hands with a girl, much less kissed one. He's ten years old, uh, and he can still pull off these early songs with such vocal prowess. He was smart. And he was a craftsman even then. I forget sometimes how brief this initial run of the Jackson 5 was. Uh, I Want You Back was number one in 1969. Uh, their final number one, I'll Be There, was 1970. As Jeff mentioned, four in a row to start the career. Had a couple of high-charting singles in the year or two after that, but by and large, that was it until they essentially left Motown in the mid-70s, had a few other more dance, uh, funk, disco-type hits toward the mid to late 70s, and then as Michael became bigger, there were reunions and attempts to sort of cash in on him being as big as he was. But these early tracks, and Jeff already mentioned the ones, and you know them all. I mean, think about I'll Be There for a moment. Uh, that's a song that is challenging enough that someone as talented as Mariah Carey is, is lauded for sort of pulling it off when, when she covered it and had her own massive hit with it as well. And, this and is, she was competing with an 11-year-old. Right, and this is an 11-year-old, essentially, doing it the first time and perhaps even doing it a little bit better. Those vocals are so pure and clean. Their first hit, I Want You Back, that to me is the perfect song of these of these four number ones. It's their first uh, from from the very beginning. It's a perfect song construction. You hear Michael, you know, wail on that first note before the first verse hits. Man, it is special. It doesn't, it never fails to sort of get you moving. But tip a cap to the Motown band, tip a cap to that Motown band, that guitar going, just the rhythm. It is the essence of what rhythm guitar is supposed to be. It is so perfect. Oh, 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 oh,
there's the word that comes to mind, and I'll probably use this later, infectious. Like you, you break out smiling, mm-hmm. your foot starts tapping a lot. Like uh, to use a, a, you know, a modern example, when I Want You Back plays in Guardians of the Galaxy, my entire cinema just started humming along. Like <laughs> it, it's infectious. Like everybody knows the words or at least the tune. And like, I swear to God, I could hear tapping in the audience. And t- just to speak what you, um, what uh, you guys were talking about before, if you're interested in this era, Spike Lee's documentary, um, Journey from Motown to Off the Wall, with it's got some fascinating raw footage of this baby-faced, pubescent Michael Jackson with killer instincts already for, for not just musical talent and artistry, but musical business as well, like learning what sells, what works, how to get ahead. Like it, it is fascinating to listen to these early interviews where you can see, you know, wheels turning that lay the foundation for his future success. It's a fascinating documentary. Scott? And the thing about this early Jackson 5 music is you certainly can hear the talent of Michael. Uh, who is in front for Amen. the Amen. majority of these songs? Um, it, what's what's less than certain is 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 I mean certainly the voices are there with the rest of the band, but you can hear. But, but it's not predictive of his future success, right? You you have a ton of, of 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 stars who will burn out very quickly. You have a ton of child stars even who once they mature, and this is I guess kind of a weird dichotomy for Michael because in a way, you know, that maturity comes in a very odd way through the years, I suppose. But you'd have these, you know, child stars who mature and sort of either lose their way, lose their focus, get tired of sort of the fame and the stardom. Nothing was guaranteed at this point, right? I guess is the point I'm trying to make. You hear these songs and they're, and they're really fantastic, but there's no guarantee that Michael is going to sort of break out and become this legendary generational success, uh, putting out these albums that sell you know, m- dozens of millions of copies. On and, a very simple physical level, you just couldn't predict where his voice would end right, up after right. he hit puberty and it dropped. You and, know, and it's still, that's it, a really it, good it went, point. It went down, not that much though. And that's why he still you know, retained that continuity as Michael Jackson. But, you know, there's that great episode of The Simpsons where Homer as a child is singing like boy soprano. <laughs> yeah, and right, all of a sudden, right, right. <laughs> his, his voice breaks well, in good. the middle of like, oh, holy night. <laughs> and he's like, don't. You know, he has like his and don't. It's, it's, it's all don't. over. <laughs> that could have happened. It, it didn't, but it could have happened. It, and what's also the foundation, like when we get to like the '90s, there is this kind of um, formula. Okay, we'll 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 take kid talent and we'll try to turn them to adult stars. If you like, not that not that type of adult star, but you know, we'll try we'll we'll put our toe in the water to see if we can keep the money train going. That. That formula isn't really there at this time period, which is like that which shows you like he, they have to, you know, when we get to Jackson himself, but even the Jacksons themselves, when they have to transform to a more funky, groovy disco group, even that formula to keep them around is not a sure thing. There, there really had only been one previous blueprint for this transition from megastardom as a child to megastardom as an adult. And, of course, it came with Motown. It was Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Now, Stevie was a little different because he wasn't part of this family organization, this big band, right? Uh, he was always putting out these solo albums. And, of course, the problem – I'm a huge Stevie Wonder fan. 
but uh, like early like '60s Stevie albums, they're not great. Uh, it's just like they they got these singles. The singles are great, and you know you can get them on a compilation. The albums themselves, it's just you know tossed off stuff, which I think. I guess is a good way to talk about the early Michael Jackson solo albums. They mm-hmm. immediately understood, like, well, to be cynical about it, you know, this is a marketable property. All right, you know, Michael, this kid can sing his heart out, and everyone loves him. He's just the most adorable-looking little child. Uh, we're gonna give him some solo albums. He's gonna be sort of like the breakout star of the Jacksons. Jermaine actually tried to do that a little bit later, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why he stayed with Motown. He married Barry Gordy's daughter is another reason why he <laughs> stayed with Motown when the rest of them went over to Epic. But, like, you've got these first four Michael Jackson solo albums. It's got to be there. Ben, Music and Me, and, oh, it's the fourth one. It's like Hello, Forever, or Forever Michael. Yeah. Forever Michael, which is pretty good, actually. And so, like, those are always treated as sort of like, you know, well, I mean, in, in a very real way, they're, they're baby pictures, right? They're, they're his earliest stuff and they're also when he was still kind of controlled by the motown factory machine he wasn't writing his own music or directing his own musical you know imperatives he was being told okay here you're gonna cover this hey we got our team to write this song for you hey you know like you remember that great stevie wonder song shooby dooby dooby do hey you know <laughs> you can do a version of it and actually it's a pretty good version it's mm-hmm. a different version of it but i have to say that there's once you get past the fact like I'm listening to a 12 year old sing songs to me for like 30 minutes, gosh, these early albums really do hit a sweet spot with me. I love his version of Bill Withers' Ain't No Sunshine. Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. He, he, he completely redoes it. it it's, it's, it's a complete reimagining on his debut album. It's the first song on Got to Be There. Ain't no sunshine when she's I love the way he just takes that and changes it. And then he even, like, very cannily, they know, like, you're singing a child song, so Rockin' Robin. Man, that song was played in, like, my like nursery school, elementary school, like, you know, even, like, middle school. All the damn time. I got to become intimately equated with Michael Jackson singing Rockin' Robin, tweet, 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 Rockin' Robin, tweet, tweet it's like a kid song right and so but that's the, that was the trap unfortunately that like you had you know a, a child star singing songs basically aimed at kids or you know parents who are getting stuff and they're like it's, it's kind of the way that we look at like pixar movies now right where you know they're made for kids but parents can enjoy them too because they're not like you know completely crap it's like you know every it, it's fun for the whole family as the cliche would go <laughs> 
another Simpsons reference, you know, when Krusty asks the Red Hot Chili Peppers to change the, <laughs> the lyrics of Give It Away Now. He's like, and then they say like, hey, you know, that's great. The whole family can enjoy that. <laughs> well, that was early Michael Jackson records. And I guess the best possible example of that I can mention is, and this is the sappiest damn thing in the world, but I have no regrets. It's Ben. Ben, the song written for a pet rat. And uh, it was Daniel who corrected me. I thought it was like a hamster or maybe like a, like a runaway scruffy dog. No, it's about a pet rat. A killer uh, pet rat. A killer pet rat. Yes, killer. Horror, horror movie. What's funny, and he, his performance of that at the Oscars is just, again, like when you Shocking. see... It's like, it like this, is, this kid is this good live as well. Like... Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, 75 takes and they finally spliced together like 30 of them to make it. No, that's just, he could do that off the bat every time. Been the two of us need look no more. We both found what we were looking for. should laugh when the song opens with baby Michael singing a song to a killer pet rat singing Ben the two of us need look no more we both found what we were looking for with a friend to call my own I'll never be alone <laughs> gosh every time he says and you my friend will see you've got a friend in me Boy, there's like a phantom tear just dripping down my eye. It's like so and what's, cheesy, what's crazy, but it works. Is when if on the Michael Jackson ones album, there's the 2003 version of it. Yeah, when he's an adult, and it still kills. It still hits that that's <laughs> that phantom tear. Like it affects me the same. Like it, it's like the harmony between baby Michael and adult Michael singing about a pet killer rat. I And here's something I, I thought I was going to get to later, but I'll at least preview it now. One of the reasons that works so much is this is about the personal psychology of Michael Jackson. You know, how many times have, have people discussed like arrested development? He's sort of like a child in a man's body in a lot of ways. Well, I think there actually is some truth to that. And that maybe because he had a really hard childhood, you know, not only, you know, you know, you know, being a, uh, pushed around and abused maybe by his dad but also just always being trotted out on stage being the little performing you know puppet that he had to be like there's a vulnerability that he sings with that is personal it's not affected and that's why he was like one of the only people like you know we all make fun of celine dion ballads these days which is awful we'll, we'll talk this when we get into mj's 90s but 
Michael kind of still pulls them off because there's always that vulnerability that remains within him that was there even when he was really young that it feels real like this is the only guy on the planet who could ever pull off singing to a pet rat <laughs> and make it work scott there, there, go, uh, daniel go ahead no, no daniel yeah oh, go for it I was just going to say, if you if you go to my Twitter archive, you will see last week I tweeted, life's too short to admit you don't like Celine Dion's music. But, yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. Yes, I was going to mention. Well, I thought about mentioning that, but I'm glad you did. Um, Jeff's point there is totally, uh, 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 totally true. You know, Jackson's ability to find that emotional center and really use his voice to... Um, to bring it out and make you feel never, never, never leaves him. And it starts early and it's there throughout his career. There are songs that would not work. One in mind we'll talk about uh, would not work really with anyone else singing them, but they work because of the way uh, the approach he takes and I, you know, his experiences that he's able to draw on to, to get to that emotional core. Um, this first album, well, the first album's got to be there, and then Ben comes just a couple months afterwards, where that number one song comes from. That first one is one in which Motown really threw all their resources at it as possible. Right? You had all the production team members, you had all the songwriters trying to make things happen for Michael on his solo debut, and it uh, it worked for the most part. They they had a, a, a two t- two top five hits from that first album. One of them uh, got to be there, his first solo hit. I, I think it's one of his best early vocal performances. And, uh, and then you get number one with Ben on, on the very next album. Then things start to dry up, right? Um, and, and this is what I was getting at when I said, you know, not, nothing's guaranteed uh, to Michael Jackson, despite his, his young success, uh, because you don't know how it's going to play out. And you don't know what he's going to be as an artist. And we don't see that for a few, other, or a few more years. And by that, I mean what, what he wants to sing about. What songs does he want to perform? What does he want his music to sound like? We don't really get that on the other two albums in this in this time period. One is Music and Me, which I think is probably the worst of these four. It's uh, there are some okay moments. Um, I like um, him doing. It's kind of like Marvin Gaye. Like even when he was putting out mediocre yeah. '60s Motown albums, it's like I just like his voice, so I'll listen to him singing it. Right. But like, yeah, there isn't a lot on that album. Forever Michael is pretty good, though. I do like that. There's a song on that called One Day in Your Life. Yes, which I think is a really good kind of a slow burn ballad that, you know, only he was 16, a mere 16 at this time. Uh, uh, You know, he's singing like a man now that he's 16 years old, but it's really good.
that one's a good one. We've got Forever from that Forever Michael album, I think might be the best thing on the album. Some really tasteful strings, this sloping yeah. drum beat. Hal David's brother wrote it, actually. And so there are some sort of corny lyrics here and there. How, how lucky we are to be me and you. Uh, caring is sharing the cake and the crowns. But he pulls it off. <laughs> Every time I get to caring is sharing, yeah. yeah. Boy, it's like, it that's, that's, that's like straight up Care Bears. You know, Forever Michael is 1975, early 1975. The album itself doesn't crack the top 100. The singles on here go to, what, 55, 54, and I think uh, 23. But nothing close to the success of Ben, nothing close to the success the Jackson 5 had. And uh, I'll let Daniel sort of weigh in on these early albums if he has more thoughts. But we get to 1975, which becomes a real fork in the road for Michael Jackson's career and what will come next because Forever Michael was not a hit. It did not move units. It, he was not part of really the conversation of the music scene of 1975. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, I don't have a lot of thoughts with the early stuff. Um, like we've said in our um, earlier preemptive emails, it, it's the stuff I'm the least familiar with. However, I will say that you two have got me excited to dip back into it. But Good. I think the what... What I would say is I think the foundation, the, the continuous thing that makes pop music pop music, in my basic opinion, is fun. Like, if they're not fun songs, there's not a poppy quality. And the best thing I think you can say about this early, this early period is that Jackson is very aware, is very aware that... Um, you want people to you want people to have fun listening to your music. Of mm -hmm. course, like we can get to the kind of emotional, um, romantic, and things like that. You know, like and and he'll tap into that. Um, you know, I, I I love a lot of Michael Jackson's romantic love ballads or even his like lustful, flirty stuff. But what's interesting, I think, is kind of watching him watching him grow for this time period is very interesting with some of the themes that are explored where there is a kind of cute little innocence we have but then when we get to you know you know when we when they have to change their name into the jacksons we get something like dancing machine it kind of goes from innocent fun to flirty fun which i think a lot of teenagers could probably resonate with um you know but by the time you know when we get to like more in his 20s and stuff where it's like a lot more explicit fun but still right just to pick a moment what Dan said there, I think that the really important thing that needs to be understood about Michael's musical development here is the path that he took with the Jackson 5. And Dancing Machine is that, you know, the beginning of that fork in the road. The real fork in the road, I think, happens with like when 
they leave Motown and they mm-hmm. go to Epic Records and they decide well, we're not part of the factor anymore. Uh, we're going to pursue these new trends. And then they get into real like club, disco, dance music, which by God, they were amazing at. Uh, but yeah, dancing. You know, that's a, There are a couple of songs here from the Jackson 5, which you know in your heart. You have heard. They're just sort of like, you know, in, they're buried in your 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 bone marrow or your DNA. And one of those is dancing, dancing, dancing. <laughs> like, I didn't even know until I bought, like, the Jackson 5, like, box set. I got really deep into them and I got all their records. And I was like, but that's a Jackson 5 song? I just thought it was like a sort of a, like a generic soul song. Like the Ohio Players or something like that. Can, no, I, can I tell you something gen- really embarrassing? What? The first time I found out about Dancing Machine and the way I knew it first and for a while is because it was covered on MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him <laughs> album. He covers Dancing Machine. That's where I, that's where I first knew about the song. Oh, that's, 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 there's some things that shouldn't be repeated <laughs> in public. my opinion on the girl is mine um but but uh the other one i think that, you know during this sort of transitional period and there was a long transition of course this is the point where he's like you know you know 16 years old becoming 19 20 21 becoming an adult that's an awkward transition for any human being especially somebody who's lived their entire life in the public eye but it was the Jackson 5's commercial trajectory that really carried him along the way. And there is no better example of that than one of the great Michael Jackson songs. And I think this is one of his. He wrote this. He co-wrote it. He co-wrote it with his brother Randy. Um, shake Your Body is a song that, if I say the words, Shake Your Body, do you know that song? Does that song immediately appeal to you? in your head do you hear the the rhythm the groove i do not probably not yeah i guarantee you the minute we drop this clip you'll be like oh hell yeah i know that song because every time uh you went to a club or a bar or a wedding reception or anything like that this song got played it is as i i I guess wrote it to you in our show notes uh it's like this isn't just the future of michael jackson it's our collective future.
You kind of have that where it's like, oh, yeah, I want you back, ABC, Ben. And then it keeps going and going. And you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that song. I like that song. I like that song. It's, 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 it's a perfect disco track. And the thing is, is it's also a perfect transition into what, what we call like modern Michael, you know, that modern era. Now, which of us wants to tackle the big wildebeest that is off the wall? Off the wall is, I don't, maybe I'm in the wrong circle. To me, it's still somewhat overlooked, forgotten. I, we think about Michael Jackson, I think about Thriller and Bad and Dangerous, and those sold an immense amount of copies. Off the wall was an absolute monster as well. And maybe it's because Jeff and I both were born just after Off the Wall was released in, in 79. But Off the Wall doesn't come up in those conversations in the same way. But it was huge. 17 million copies, two number one songs, and vaulted a now 21-year-old Michael Jackson uh, smack dab into the middle of, 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 of music royalty. Uh, this is clearly his solo breakthrough. And I'll, I'll sort of have this one-line thing about each of the next few albums. To me... This is Michael Jackson at his most pure. And going back to what Daniel was talking about, this is Michael Jackson at his most joyful. Michael Jackson at his, his, uh, his peak ability to drive people to have fun and enjoy his music without the hard edge percussion, without the paranoia that's going to sneak in, without the anxiety that's going to come soon. This is pure Michael Jackson. tabloid pressure there's none of the media stuff here at this point it's just like his first shot and it, you're right it's unmediated it's pure and i think part of the reason it's somewhat overlooked is it's it's thought of as a disco record as a dance disco record and yeah there's some truth to that right but but by august of 79 when this is released disco was already dying or on its last legs and off the wall, and Michael Jackson and his, his, his writers here use that style as a base, but build around it into this very unique world of funk, but smooth soul. There are Philly-style strings. There are a couple of ballads on here. This record, this production still sounds really 
fresh. It is still a fun, joyful record now, 42 years into the future. The songwriting is brilliant. The melodies are super strong. The hooks are all over the place. Here's where we introduce people to Quincy Jones, who uh, Michael Jackson met while working on The Wiz and brought him in to work on this off-the-wall album. He'd stay through Thriller. He'd stay through uh, Bad as well. well. By the way, Scott, do you know the story about that? It's pretty hilarious uh, because it's very quintessential Quincy Jones. Michael came up to him. like They were doing... The Jackson 5 were, were... recording songs for the whiz which is this sort of remake of the wizard of oz but you know from like a black urban point of view and then and mj was kind of like like, was like wondering oh, who should the next producer for my album be and this is like a dick cheney situation <laughs> where he walks up to quincy yes. jones and yeah. he's just like who do you think hey you got any recommendations on who my next producer would be and quincy says it's me i should be your producer and <laughs> You can't blame him because the guy sold like a hundred billion albums with them. Um, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great kind of a meet cute story uh, in terms of like you know artist producer. Yeah, uh, look, uh, let's just talk about a couple of tracks here. I'll, I'll briefly mention "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough." I, I know both you guys will likely talk about it, but the very beginning, you know, the very start of the album, the very start of the track, where you have this sort of youthful <laughs> Michael. Anything about the force is so strong. Yeah, right? exactly. He's just sort of mumbling and then all of a until sudden, the woo, boom, and then woo, and then it's exactly. We're both doing it simultaneously. Yes, it's that incredible string section. But that's Michael breaking free, right? That is setting himself up for the rest of this album entirely. He writes the songs. Well, not all of them. He writes, you know, some of the songs. He writes Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. It's Michael Jackson. He is the sole songwriter on Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. And there's a hilarious story there where he walked around with that little like riff in his head. And he just kept like banging it out on a piano or whatever. He played it for his mom. The Jacksons are Jehovah's Witnesses, which is, you know, as far as Christian sects go, are, you know, kind of a little bit odd um like kind of pentecostal level odd uh and you know you know his mom said to him was like don't stop till you get enough that seems to be a very <laughs> lascivious sexual song and he's like no it's just about like get out there on the dance floor and shake it until you're done which is exactly what it is but of course you and, and he actually says like you can interpret it any way you want mm-hmm. Uh, which, of course, is the way it's usually interpreted. But, oh, God, it is just six minutes of pure perfection. There is – this is what I mean. You know, Daniel confessed in his pre-show notes that he's not a huge fan of disco music. I got to say, I'm a big fan of disco. I don't know why, because this is it. I'm the whitest, gawkiest, (laughs) non-dancingest guy on the planet. I just really love great grooves. Great strings, great you know falsetto vocals. So man, give me some Donna Summer, give me some Giorgio Moroder, BGs, whatever you want. Ohio players, anything funk, soul, disco. But this to me has always been. I will say that you know, if I had to rank like all the great disco songs of all time, God, there would be a ton. And, and you know, their top five I would argue over endlessly. I will not argue over my top one. And it's this. It's don't stop till you get enough. I'm melting. I'm melting. I'm melting. 
I was gonna say, I think one of the reasons why it works, it transcends disco. Like, it, it clearly has the disco vibe for sure. And, you know, it has, you know, all the funk, all the funky, um, you know, the, the, the funky tunes you want. But it, it gets away from that, um, clearly knowing that this trend is probably going out. The fact that it ends with a song called Burn This Disco Out <laughs> is not an accident. Like, that is clearly not an accident um, on the albums or Michael's behalf. But th- this is the type of album you. Th- this is the type of album you can press play or turn the vinyl on or whatever, and just let it rip. Like, th- like you can just let it go. I mean, except for girlfriend, but we'll get to that. No, um, it's one of the <laughs> second best song on the album. Damn it. Okay, whatever. We'll oh argue. no, no. Anyway, we'll get to that. But like, you can just let it rip and just go for it. It's the type of song that. I, I, I love to cook to this album. I love to clean to this album. I love to drive to this album. Like it is just, you can just start off with a tiny, tiny grin and you will be beaming like an idiot by the end of this album. I've, I've spent like a, a solid 25, nearly 30 years on the internet. And I think when I was like 17, people were still already at that point describing this as the greatest party album of all time. As everyone's standing around awkwardly, you know, kind of like chit-chatting, standing in corners, you know, eating crackers, put on, off the wall, start with Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, people will start dancing. You can't help it. You can't help it. Even Girlfriend, which Daniel, I guess we'll get to in a moment, but Scott, first. So we got to talk a bit about Rod Temperton, who's going to be a big deal in Michael Jackson's world for this album, the next album. Uh... Rod Temperton, who I accidentally confused with uh, Ted Templeman, who is Van Halen's producer and not the same guy whatsoever. Uh, but Rod Temperton writes uh, Rock With You on this album. Uh, initially, point out that this, this is a guy from like Lincolnshire, England. Yes. Like, like, like a very British person. And he, you know, he's written some other great songs, too. Uh, Give Me the Night, that's Rod Temperton. Yeah. And uh, Baby Come to Me, which I have a very soft spot for. And a song, actually, I, I was thinking this morning, I, I could maybe hear Michael Jackson singing Baby Come to Me. Yeah. But uh, so he, he writes rock with Quincy you. Jones recruited him. Yeah. To, to like, you know, after he, he had like this little soul funk English white R&B band that broke up, didn't have a big success. Quincy Jones just found him. He's like, you are the bomb. Come here. We're going to work together. And then Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson meet. And so, therefore, Quincy Jones and Rod Temperton and Michael Jackson all meet together, and that's what becomes the next several albums that you're going to hear. And Rock With You is a song that Daniel mentioned, Don't Stop to Get Enough, sort of, it is disco, but not. It's the same thing with Rock With You. Disco? Sure. Listen to the uh, that four-on-the-floor drums during the, you know, gotta feel that heat, and that's just bump, dump, dump, dump. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's disco... And it's sort of soft rock, right? It's disco, and it's sort of soulish. You know what song I I, I, I I connected my head with "Rock with You," and I have no idea if it makes sense. But uh, you know the Boz Skag song "Lowdown." Yes, right? like it's disco. Yes, but yes, it's yes. Not. That, I had it's... never, I never in a billion years would have made that connection, but it makes sense. When you
and I love both of those. I love both of them to death. Uh, both are just fantastic songs. The other Temperton song that we have to mention is the title track, which might be my... Uh, you can't be better than Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. That's a 10 out of a 10. Uh, Off the Wall is really close, and that's another Temperton one. If you listen closely enough, you're going to hear some of the beats, some of the bass lines that are going to be reused on a little song called Thriller on the <laughs> next album, and even well, like the, the the claps after the after the verse lines he brings those back to. But Off the Wall is such a slinky, silky, soulful, life ain't so bad at all if you live it off the wall. Uh, that's a brilliant song from Temperton fabulous delivery from Michael Jackson on uh, uh, on the title track here. Scott, I, I, I hate to interrupt. Well, no, I don't hate to interrupt. I actually enjoy interrupting. But I have to point out, because I said this in our emails earlier, it's like, has anybody, why haven't actually more people noticed that Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, that middle instrumental break with the horns? Hmm. It's Thriller, which is a song. Okay, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, written by Michael Jackson. Thriller from the next album, that was written by Rod Temperton. Mm-hmm. He clearly just listened to that, and he's like, it's like you know what why waste that <laughs> in the middle eight of a six minute song we could make a number one billion selling 13 minute music video single out of that and it's true drop the clip Last one I'll mention very quickly, uh, except to say I'm on Team Jeff for uh, when the girlfriend conversation comes up here in a second. I think girlfriends are a great song, but only only Michael Jackson could probably pull off. Uh, Working Day and Night is another one that Michael Jackson wrote himself. Tremendous chorus. The horn chart blows my mind. Those horns are out of this world. And I, I describe them as the, like this sticky horn sound. It's amazing. That first, you know, don't stop till you get enough, rock with you, working day and night. Like, uh, uh, just a party album. Those three songs are going to get you moving. There's no doubt about it. Off the Wall, Off the Wall is my favorite Michael Jackson album. And you must be seeing some other guy instead of me. Ooh, 
I've been at funerals where corpses started dancing to Off the Wall. I mean, it's, it's that danceable of an album. But Daniel, go. Well, I'm just gonna tell say, tell me like, why you're you know, wrong what... about girlfriend. That's what I want to know. Oh, see, I, I was gonna, okay. We're gonna get into girlfriend because for me, like the st- the sleeper hit on this album for me is I can't help it. Like mm-hmm. that's like after Great. after you've been dancing and pumping, you know, on the grooving, you find the girl, you start to slow dance, and when you know, looking in my mirror, like when when that like silky smooth, buttery softness that is Michael Jackson turning up the kind of the romance, the set the sensuality like it it this song is just designed to get you laid like it is just like it is fantastic this song <laughs> i think like bringing sparkles to your Am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And there's so many hits on this album that we haven't even talked about something like She's Out of My Life, which is like... She's, a, she's Out of My Life is interesting because I think I may have... It's, it's early ballad, I, Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. I so For me, I think it's a little misplaced on this album. Mm-hmm. It, it's a powerful song and Jackson is a powerful singer. But I, I every time I've heard him sing it, I like it better when he's older and when it's live. And I think it's because I, I think he's a little too immature for this as a, as a human being, like not as a sing. Clearly he has the emotional, he, he, he has the, the singer's ability to tap into the emotions of the song. But I think, I think, I think that like, cause originally it was designed for Sinatra, um, if I'm not mistaken. And I think you can kind of tell that it need, I think you needed a kind of, I've seen the world a little, like, you know, I, I've been there with a woman before. It's a my with way Jackson, kind of just, a vibe. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just don't think I buy it at this point in Jackson's career. She's out of my life. Damn indecision and cursed pride. I kept my love for her. Deep inside, and it cuts like a knife. He's out of my It's a little like it, it. It it skirts the line, I think, between heartfelt, like I need a tissue sappy, or like, oh come on, this is like I'm gonna have diabetes <laughs> sappy. 
Well, that's a line that he mirac- straddles often. I, well, I was about to say that's the miracle of Jackson's career is that when he pulls these ballads, yes, yes. is that he can get you there from Ben all the way to like you know, heal the world. That one sucks because of the stupid children's introduction. But okay, um, you know, I want you to explain to me why you were so wrong about girlfriend. By the way, I will start by stipulating that I am a huge Paul McCartney fan and Wings fan. We did an episode on not just the Beatles, but we did a solo Paul McCartney episode and uh, I love a lot of his glurgy stuff I hate the version of this song that's on London Town from 1978 but what I am just constantly amazed by is how Michael Jackson took a song that sucks and turned it into something that every time he goes into the chorus yeah I'm just singing the stupid falsettos every single time it was almost like McCartney wrote it for him like wrote it for him and knowing that like okay my version won't be great but someday this guy across the pond in indiana michael jackson he will take it and turn it into a pop smash i really love that song and i just don't understand why you do not I don't let me make it clear i don't skip it like i i let it play out to me it's just like you know girlfriend i wanna be like it's kind of whiny and it just doesn't it just doesn't hit me like at all the same way and maybe it's because of where it's positioned in the album and i kind of feel like i've been let down a little bit after off the wall um i, I honestly i just it just doesn't resonate with me and it's also I, I we're, we'll get into it when we get to um, thriller, but I the, the girl is mine. I can't stand as well. So maybe it's just my McCartney. Like for me, McCartney and Jackson. Apart from a few like the like yeah yeah yeah, I the song just doesn't hit with me at all. I, it, it comes off weak compared to the content of the rest of the album, and it comes off as just whiny to me. I've got um, a feel. I've got to like. I've got a feeling that you're not a big fan of uh, Wings's silly love songs. I can just sort of tell from this discourse. Not particularly, no. <laughs> well, I am, and and I guess I got a lot of lo- I got a lot of room in my life for silly love songs. Um, I I, I just want to make sure that before we move on, uh, have everybody uh, here said what they want to say about Off the Wall, which. Scott already admitted it's his favorite MJ album. It might make mine. I'm not sure at the end. It's so good. And it is as weird as it is to say about a Michael Jackson album, um, curiously underrated. 
perhaps because of the disco style. But you guys have any final thoughts before we move on to, I guess, the big white whale? I just want to say burn this disco out is how that is like textbook how you end an album. Yes. Like there's only one word. It is groovy. But for me, the lyric. So DJ spin the sound like that. That lyric gets me every single time. Like it's I don't know what it is, but when when that when he sings that, it just makes me want to clap and get up. It like it like it just resonates with me. Hot damn groovy. So DJ It's been a long time since I closed a club down, by which I mean, like, you know, you're the last person on the dance floor or buying drinks yes. at 2.30 a.m. And, like, they've cut everyone off and you got to get the hell out of there. This song played, I think, at least three times when I did that. And it was always burn this disco down <laughs> or burn this disco out because you're not burning it down. We want to come back tomorrow. But God, it's a great way to end the album. You know, you have those ballads in the middle, right? You know, we, we talked about like she's out of my life, you know, uh, your girlfriend. But then come big, flaming, scorching burner. If you call a song "Burn This Disco Out," that song better burn. Because if it doesn't burn, then you are going to be called out on it. This song burns, and it's probably one of his most underrated songs. It's, it's never on any compilations or anything. The only way you're going to hear it is go get off the wall. Um, God, it is just compulsively danceable. It's 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 a bookend, really. Don't stop till you get enough. Starts it. Burn this disco out. Ends it. And in the middle, it's just one of the the, the most enjoyable, joyful albums of all time. That Scott? will lead us into Thriller. Um, uh, boy, oh boy. It's not even a very big album. Let's go on to bed. Seven. Here's the amazing. Seven of the nine songs on Thriller reached the top ten on the singles charts. You had this album that stretched over three years. Released in 82, number one through 83, number one through 84. Not consecutively, but kept, you know, kept coming back. You had uh, 33 million or so in the U.S., 65 million copies in the world. This, you know, I mentioned, uh, Off the Wall to Me is Michael Jackson, most pure, most pure. Thriller is what happens when you design an album with some really talented people. And remember, Michael Jackson had been, you know, grew up, literally grew up around the greatest Motown producers, songwriters of all. Around Barry Gordy, around, uh, you know, Dozier, all, all, 
Holland right. Dozier Holland, you know. Right, the you know, Hollands. Right. Gripper and all these people. He knew what he was doing, and he was also insanely driven. And so working with Barry Gordy on Thriller and Rod Temper comes back to, to, to write some songs. This is the sound of what, what happens when you have all of that talent with the sole goal of making music that will appeal to everyone. Not, not every single song necessarily, but something for everyone, and, but nothing that will turn people away, right? So this very, this very, very narrow needle uh, eye. I, I have a needle in which every song is, is attractive to someone, but nothing drives anyone away. And to pull but, but that off... There's a third element to that needle that you're talking about. is because when you try to do that, what happens most often of all? You end up with gloop. You end up with absolute garbage shite. All right? Because if you try to make something that will appeal to everyone, you end up more often than not with something that appeals to nobody. Mm -hmm. But the miracle of Thriller is that, yeah, it's like, here's your awesome rock, here's your awesome disco, here's your awesome dance, soul, funk, R&B, pop, whatever. And instead of appealing to nobody by trying to please everyone, it actually pleased everyone. Everyone. Multiple it times It pleased over. everyone. I like to point out commonly that like, <laughs> One-sixth of the entire population of the United States bought this album, and the other five-sixths of the United States didn't, didn't made the calculation, correctly so, that they didn't need to buy this <laughs> album. hear it whenever they wanted to. <laughs> they should turn on the radio and hear every damn song, every single moment of the day, and that's how amazing an achievement it is. mistaken he doesn't even tour thriller he's still touring with the jacksons at this point well the victory tour is what is that 82 84 it's 84 84 uh, yeah, yeah, but that, that that's another fascinating dichotomy in michael's career is where he you know he feels this is sort of it's a very you know understandable family need to sort of balance out obligations to this solo career which you know started off it was big even as a small child but then it could became enormous with off the wall and then it became clearly ther thermonuclear with thriller and yet he wasn't going to just walk away mm -hmm. from the family he was going to still play and perform and do some songs i think it was only after the 1984 tour where he finally said all right that's it i'm done 
Um, and even then, like they had like some like failed 1989 album where it was just the Jacksons, and he still came back to sing on the title track for that song because like why not your family? So it's it's actually I have to say it's admirable, you know, to say that like, the guy who's like the biggest pop star on the planet, you know, hasn't just simply turned around and abandoned <laughs> all the people who helped bring him to that point. Yeah, you know, he's gonna do it, and then that's why you have these enormous gaps. Albums Off the Walls 1979, Thriller is 1982, Bad is 1987, Dangerous 91. I mean, there's these these presidential administration level gaps between records. Also, because he's spinning off eight singles, so you can work them for two and a half years after the release. That's another reason. So you can just see you can sit at Neverland Ranch and get the bones of the elephant man and watch your singles go to number one. Uh, I brought us into uh, into Off the Wall. Daniel, why don't you take us into some of the music here on Thriller? I mean, like you said, it's kind of just like, what can you say about Thriller that hasn't been said before? But to, to show a little bit of consistency, you know, boom, want to be starting something. Like, it, it is just, you know, Don't Stop You Get Off gets you on the dance floor and gets you moving. Want to be something, something. Very similar. Like, it's a shock to the nervous system with how energetic and electrifying and enjoyable that is that song is wait, wait, wait. Um, you're thriller... not saying that it's a shock to the system are you mick jagger no, like... or, or a state <laughs> no. of shock a no, state like, of shock it's like <laughs> no no i'm just it's like it's shocking it's shocking how good it is like it really um is. I'm sorry and it's just such a weird like it's so weird like when you isolate all the different sounds that are coming into that and the it it, it, it just sounds you know it, it's you throw the whole kitchen sink in that song, like, but it still just works in so many ways. Um, Frula lives up to the hype in so many ways as well. And what's great is that it, it, it I, singers were getting close to Halloween, you know, Frula just works all year round, but it's heightened in its awesomeness at Halloween. Like, it's just so much fun. It's so good. Beat it's excellent. Billy Jean, I think for me, was like the first standout track where I got to see the more the depth of Michael. Um, particularly, it's also it's also the first sign we have of his personal life uh, being accused of um, having a baby with this woman, um, which kind of shows you some of the direction of where his music will be going with that level of intimacy, paranoia, fandom, stardom, media sensation.
is a song that I didn't love at first, but it's really grown on me in recent years, uh, particularly with its energy and its kind of um, its capacity to just like really get, uh, invigor invigorate, I think is great. Uh, what about you guys? Well, I actually want to throw this over to Scott before I get into my deep thoughts, but you're talking about the paranoia of a song like Billie Jean and you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of a song that, that Michael Jackson never took credit for. He didn't actually uh, you know, perform under his own name, but he really basically wrote, and it's called Somebody's Watching Me. Do you guys know this song? Rockwell, of course. Barry Gordy's Rockwell, nephew, right. son. After, yes, long yes, yes. after this is after the you know the, he, they'd left Motown long ago, but they had the big Motown 25 year reunion. That's the famous, famous, famous uh, TV show where Michael Jackson did the big moonwalking on stage and just, just amazing visual performance. So he was just like you know I guess feeling in a positive mood and you know he you know this is after Thriller, but he he writes a song called Sometimes I Feel Like somebody's watching me and i ain't got no privacy um <laughs> it's exactly this and of course you're going to hear it again later on on songs on bad and on dangerous and of course on history and, and furthermore but like this is indeed the beginning of the paranoia era and i think the reason he gave that track away to like you know a one shot rockwell i mean i don't even know who rockwell was was he a, i assume he's a family member of barry gordy because if there's a one-shot Motown hit single... He's the son. Yeah, he's Barry Gordy's son. <laughs> there you go! <laughs> I didn't even know. But yeah, there you go. That's the reason. Uh, but MJ just gave it away, sings, sings on the backing vocals. And uh, that is that aspect of paranoia that Daniel is talking about that really starts seeping into these lyrics. Starting on Thriller, but get bigger and bigger from here on out. I'm just an average man with an average life. I mentioned I had this on eight track. I know uh, essentially all these tracks intimately from even hearing them. I mean, listening to the album over and over again, 37 to 38 years ago. And you know all of them too. You just do. One of the weird, uh, one of the weird things about Thriller is, you know, arguably, the worst songs on the album are sequenced two and three. I'm not, I don't love Baby Be Mine, which is a Temperton song, which is the second track. And then The Girl Is Mine, which Jeff will defend here momentarily, uh, is the third song on the record. So you open up with uh, with Wanna Be Starting Something, which we'll come back to in a second. But then maybe the two, you know, I would say worse, they're, they're all good, but the least quality songs on the album back to back. And yet it all still works because after that you have, you know, all killer, no filler the rest of the way. Um, Billy Jean is such a consequential track uh tom brian who we mentioned a time or two writes the number ones over at stereo gum and is essentially essays on each number one song in billboard history and he he literally breaks the history of music down into pre-billy jean and post billy jean that's how important the song was from a cultural from a musical from an mtv perspective this is the song 
that forced MTV to start playing black artists. Uh, CBS threatened to pull every other artist they had off the network if they would not play Billie Jean. And really, uh, MTV wasn't saying they didn't want to play Michael Jackson, but they wanted to play Beat It. They wanted a video for Beat It because back then MTV still saw themselves as sort of a rocker channel, not a not a top 40 uh, cross the demographic, cross the spectrum sort of music channel. They thought of themselves as sort of a rock formatted the way a rock formatted uh, radio station would. So they said, Just give, us, give us Beat It. That's the one we want. And they refused. They made them play Billie Jean. And that's the video, as Jeff mentioned, alluded to earlier, you know, the, the, uh, the squares, the light up squares on the sidewalk. And it's a killer song, right? Putting aside the video. But again, the paranoia, the victimhood, uh, that all begins to pop up here on a song like uh, Billie Jean. What a great bass line, of course. It's the same guy who played the bass on Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, Louis, Louis Johnson. Uh, it's also the same baseline on uh, I Can't Go For That, No Can Do. By Very close. Oates. Although Daryl Hall did not uh, do anything about that. So. Oh, it's, 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 it's a really kind of fun story where, like, they finally met backstage at one of these, like, rock music award shows. And, you know, MJ actually, like, you know, came up, Daryl Hall, and was like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I sort of stole that baseline from <laughs> you guys. And then Daryl Hall was like, listen, man, no problem, no harm, no foul. I've done it myself a hundred times, too. Which is the way that music works. Like everyone, the, the, the geniuses are magpies who can repurpose something. <laughs> I can't go for that. It's a fantastic number one hit single from 1981. But Billie Jean, Billie Jean is the better song. There's just no question about it now. I really like uh, Human Nature, which is actually written by a couple of the guys in Toto. Uh, maybe you wouldn't expect that, but <laughs> the couple of guys in Toto who played the guitar on Beat, Beat It, right, Steve Lukather, which I'm going to ask you, Scott, to just simply repeat what you talked about when we discussed on our most recent Patreon episode, I believe, yes, uh, about about great guest appearances, because I think you summed it up as as well as anyone can do. So uh, let's, you know, for those who don't pay the money that they should be paying. <laughs> We give it you away just, for free. Just, just recreate what you said about it, because I think that basically covers the amazing uh, Eddie Van Halen appearance, and also the fact that it's actually Toto who are playing those big guitar riffs. Right, the riff you remember mostly from "Beat It." Da na 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 da na na. That's Steve Lukather from Toto, and Eddie Van Halen comes in and plays the the solo. The "Beat It" is clearly the attempt. You know, it's it's the rock attempt. That's the one that MTV wanted, right? It's the it's it's uh, Barry Gordy actually. Uh, not Barry Gordy, sorry. Um, Quincy Jones said, write a song like My Sharona. That was the assignment he gave. And I, I wouldn't say that Beat It sounds a whole lot like My Sharona, but it certainly has weaved its way into our consciousness the same way. Um, that, you know, uh, they, they, they needed someone to sort of flesh out that, that solo part. And the story goes that Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones calls Eddie Van Halen, who hangs up on him twice, thinking it's a prank, it's a joke. The third time they finally talk about having him uh, come play on this song. And Eddie's actually into it. Eddie wants to do it. And most importantly, he did it because, or for one of the big reasons, the rest of the band, I guess, was on vacation. or He was not around the rest of the band. He knew he was not going to take any crap from David Lee Roth or Michael Anthony about, what are you doing playing on, you know, Michael Jackson track? He thought it was cool. And so they, yeah. they, they sent him, uh, you know, the, the, the Beat It track. And Eddie Van Halen takes it upon himself to essentially rearrange the song. 
Um, it's arguable. He, he, he probably deserved a, a songwriting credit, a portion of a songwriting credit at Beat It for the work he did to sort of maneuver around what was already there and, and position his solo where it was. And if you listen to the solo, it's A, a fantastic solo, but it serves the song which is what Eddie really wanted to do. He wanted to be a part of this this great song that Michael Jackson uh, was writing. It's not too showy. It's not too incendiary. It's not heavy metal, though it has that those sort of really sort of sounds to it. It is just right. It is just right where it is in that song. did for Beat It. And again, we can't talk about this without talking about the visual, the West Side Story, gang, street fight, Michael Jackson silhouetted in the hallway of his hotel, Michael Jackson putting his leg up on the pool table in the uh, uh, at the bar. I mean, that Beat It video is so, uh, it's just so ingrained in people's minds. And of course, the way that they, they do that knife fight where you strap hands together and I think uh, Tom may have written this, but the guy with the knife in his left hand, isn't he at some like extreme disadvantage, right? If, if he's right-handed, he's got a f- knife. Maybe he's a left-hander. Left hand. I, I don't know how that works. Lefties, lefties have some proud, you uh, know, some pride here. So that's story. But, that's story of beat it. This, it's one of the greatest songs uh, of Michael Jackson's career. It's, I'm pretty certain, going to make my top five at the end. There's so uh, much. It probably won't make mine. What, what might make mine is the opening track, which is what I spend one more minute on, which want to yeah. be starting something. This song is, is not, okay. It's not quite as good as don't stop till you get enough, but it's close. It is awfully close. Um, and it, very clearly and intentionally in that same. Vibe. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I, I, I notice on the song is if I think Daniel mentioned this, that the the layers of things happening in this song are incredible. You could peel them back, you know, step by step. To try to isolate his vocals, which are insane. It's an insane vocal performance from Michael Jackson. Look, I literally, I literally took down notes uh, at the vocals at the end of the song to write out, uh, and it's all just gibberish. But I'm gonna wait till you get. There. Yeah, uh, but the, the way he, you know, uh, it's something with Michael, especially we get to like something like "Man in the Mirror," other song. The way he just says a word, pronounces a word. Listen to him. You just, you just want, you just want to be starting something. The way he says that is, is something just totally in and of itself. Um, and then that, that weird, you're a vegetable, still hate you. You're just a buffet. They eat off you. You know, Billy Jean is referenced in here. Billy Jean's always talking when no one else is talking, telling lies and rubbing shoulders. Billy Jean's in here as well. Um, but that, you know, that drum machine percussion, the way that, 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 that weaves in and out of each other. Uh, this is one of my favorite 
favorite Michael Jackson songs. It's not it's, it's not quite as good as Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, but it is really close. And that end part that, that Jeff's talking about, you know, the Mama Say, Mama Sa, uh, Mama Pusa. Right. Uh, I, I think I actually had merged that portion with the, 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 the part of Lionel Richie's All Night Long, which is complete, yeah. which is complete gibberish. But I, I Tombo think... they right. said the boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, jumbo, jumbo. Clearly. Oh, we going, yeah. Clearly Lionel Richie just sort of ripped that off. That, you know, the, the idea of doing something like that for All Night Long, which was only a year or two after the fact. But I, well, both those things sound very similar in my mind. But I want to be starting something. That's going to make my top five. <laughs> about that song's enduring appeal is even in 2008 when Akon and Jackson team up and remix it a little bit it still freaking works in 2008 it still works I have uh, literally two words written (laughs) in my notes here and it's beautiful gibberish mama say mama sa mama pusa (laughs) it doesn't mean a thing it doesn't have to mean a thing it is again music that is literally written and intended to get you out on the dance floor. So now that we've gotten you all high and happy and dancing, I'm going to bring you all down by explaining why I still like the girl as mine. Um, Boo. Which, yeah. <laughs> nobody likes it apparently except me. Uh, it's not great. I'm not saying this is the – it's not going to make my top five. Okay? It's not the best song on the album by any means. I love that chorus, and I just don't care. Okay, uh, there's one thing I could remove from it, which is the stupid dialogue track at the end. Where like You could remove Michael... almost all of Michael Jackson's dialogue tracks from his songs and come oh, away with better. God. So yeah, di- well, dialogue tracks way down a lot of Jackson's discography. Well, you know, some of those rap like intros and middle bits and like you no know, dangerous. I have to say, I will I will argue for keeping. But yes. Uh, you know, the girl is mine is silly at the end, but the build up to the chorus is genuinely good. Now, is it the best Paul McCartney, you know, Michael Jackson collaboration that has ever been? No. Say, 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 which is on a McCartney album called Pipes of Peace, which is otherwise bad. Um, that's the better song because it actually gives Michael like a chance to just like shine, go throw his voice up into those high registers and just sail. Um, the girls mind has got a really nice chorus and i think it's fascinating to me fascinating as it's just sort of a, a an aspect of commercial calculation what was the first song released from a thriller you would never have guessed it it, it wasn't the title track it wasn't beat it it wasn't billy jean it wasn't human nature or pretty young thing or want to be starting something nope the first single from thriller was the girl is mine why 
because this was a dude who had a mind to conquer the world. <laughs> I love you more than he. Take you anywhere. But I love you endlessly. Love it, we will share. So come and go with me to one sound. But we both cannot have a so it's a Softening the market. Exactly. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna put me and Mr. Beetle uh, on on a big, happy, fun song, and if you don't like it, uh, I dare you to not. Uh, I just, I'm fascinated. Like, why didn't they release Beat It first, or Thriller, or Billie Jean? Nope, they went with The Girl Is Mine. I will say one good thing about The Girl Is Mine. Uh, that is, it is grammatically correct when it says, "I love you more than he." That's correct, and I'm not sure if it's because there were sticklers for grammar or if they didn't needed a rhyme because I think the rhyme is like eternally or something. Yes, they needed an that, E word that's there. That's the reason. That's but the reason. it's grammatically correct, so I do all respect you know, for, for saying I love you more than he. That's, that's the right way to go about things. Do I need to mention that we're essentially done and haven't mentioned a little song called Thriller on this album? Uh, I know we talked about it a bit. I, like, I, I mentioned it. I mentioned well, it. Well, a little. Well, we, I, I've been, too, I've been yes. too busy turning into a werewolf during the podcast to Here, really kind of notice it. Here's what I'll just say about Thriller, in that uh, I was interested in going back and trying to separate it completely as much as possible from the video, um, which I, I don't know if I ever did explicitly. And, you know, it still works. It's still a fantastic song. That bass line is so good. Um, it works apart from the video. That Vincent Price section is we could, we could have had Vincent Price in the last episode, Jeff. The uh, the best guest appearances on uh, yeah yeah we could could have had Vincent right? Price as he does that 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 uh, voiceover at the tail end. That that is one well, spoken word to leave on a song. Like, weird move, right? Like that that's like when you're no longer playing for the R and B market or the pop market or the soul market. You're just doing like crazy fun weird shit. <laughs> Why are you gonna get like horror movie spooky Vincent Price to like do a voiceover in the middle. This is like, what, Thriller is like what, six minutes long or something like that? Yeah. It's like somewhere like four minutes through, all of a sudden, like, you know, this guy who's been in B-movie horror films, <laughs> this is, I guess he was also like, you know, he, 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 he got like later fame and some other stuff, but like, why? Why? Who knows why? It works. It works, and of course, you're right. It's so hard to to like you know extricate it from my images of dancing zombies, right? <laughs> you know, like I always think of that, and it is so Halloween. It is so Halloween. <laughs>
Like I said earlier, I I think it I think it is, it's a great song, not at Halloween, but it is elevated in the Halloween season. Like there are some there 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 are some songs that only really work at the season that they're in. Thriller works all year round, but gets better at Halloween, in my opinion. Anything else on the Thriller album before we move on? Well, I just can't imagine that we've talked about this entire record. Uh, without talking about human nature or a pretty young thing. I always I always joke with my wife that why is it called PYT and then in parentheses pretty young thing. It's like one or the other would have sufficed. Especially since Michael spells it out for you. At he the does! The in the chorus, he spells it out for you. It's a beautiful song. But human nature to me is one of those striking ones. When I was a kid, and of course you didn't, I didn't go out and buy Thriller. I only heard all these songs on the radio. As I joked, one-sixth of the country bought it. The other five-sixths heard every song on the radio. I just thought that was like a pop hit. Why? Why? And it was only when I finally, like, I was probably like 13 at the time, bought the album itself. And I was like, Human Nature? That's the name of the song? Mm -hmm. That's a Michael Jackson song? I didn't know ballads and this is not rock music but it is such a sexy ballad and it still works to this day really vivid memories to hearing the song and I think I have no way to confirm this at this point of course I think it's because going back to, to the 8 track as soon as as soon as Thriller ends if you if you jump to the 4th track of the 8 track I think you're right smack dab in the middle of Human Nature so I would do that I'd listen to Thriller and then jump over to Human Nature so I have very vivid memories of hearing Human Nature via 8 track uh, when I was very young I guess for me, like coming from an historian's perspective, it's just, it is still hard to, like, I've read Jackson biographies, I've watched Jackson documentaries, I've seen, you know, Stranger Things and other ways. Like, it is still hard from my perspective to fully fathom the godlike, you know, monster titan hit this thing was. Mm -hmm. It still boggles my brain to wrap my head around just how ginormous of a hit, like how much this album fundamentally changed everything about music. It will never happen again. I mean, and that's just almost a pedestrian observation. 
you're never going to have an album again that was at number one in the charts for an entire calendar year, basically. I have I, when I was a kid, I used to buy these great books, these like the Billboard Book of Number One Albums, and like 1983 was boring because it was just thriller, <laughs> <laughs> and there was like one other album or two other albums that peaked up into number one for like a week or so, and then 1984 back again, and like like the, the little gyrations they had to explain like in the little sidebar box. It's like yeah, it was number one here, then it went down to number two, then back to number one, then back to number two, then back to number one. The commercial dominance is something that will never happen again, of course, in the modern fracturing of you know the music era and you know the modern social media era for that matter. Um, but uh, it was earned is the best thing I can possibly say about Thriller. This was earned. If there was any album that was going to dominate mm-hmm. American popular music and popular culture from 1982, late 82 to 1984, well, I'm glad it was this, because God knows it could have been Diver Down. I don't know, <laughs> you know. And by the way, that was a funny thing. Like Eddie Van Halen, like it was really trying to break free of like sort of the restraints of uh, you know like the hard rock style that right. Van Halen had formed. And there's no accident that their album from 1984, which briefly displaced Thriller at number one on the charts, I think, mm-hmm. was. You know, the song with Jump, where he's just playing, like, lots of synthesizers and keyboards and stuff like that. And, and you know, just getting it all out of his system. And, of course, also very telling that, that David Lee Roth was saying, like, well, no, I've, I've had enough of this. And so he quit the band right after that. But my question to Daniel and Scott is, do we want to talk about how Michael Jackson cured famine in Ethiopia before we get on to bat. <laughs> well, we, we should talk about a few things here because the album cycle runs through 84. Thriller was released, I think, right at the very end of 83 and took the album back to number one in 84. Intentionally... 82, it was released in, in, at the end of 82. Yeah. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. Thriller, the album, 82, but Thriller, the song and video was released at the end of 83 and then took the album back to number one in 84. Intentionally, right. they said... We want to sell more records. Let's find a strategy to help us, you know, get back to number one. They said, well, we'll do this giant video about the, the song. And this was all intentional. So the album cycle finally ends around 84. We already mentioned he's on this victory tour with the Jacksons in 84. He and Mick Jagger have a song that goes to number three, which how do, how do Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson do a duet and not hit number one? It didn't. State of shock. It's not a great song. So it might be one reason why. During this time, you also have him. Uh, doing the Pepsi commercial where his hair and his scalp uh, are, are, are set on fire. Pyrotechnics. He has to have plastic surgery to, to uh, cover up the burns. He also has his own plastic surgery during this time as well. His skin color is changing around this time. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, if you read different things, part of it says he, he was bleaching at some point in the future. And, of course, there's a skin disease that he's dealing with that also is, is, makes it blotchy. He's covering it up with pancake makeup all the time. He does this giant video thing for Disney World, which I saw. Went to Disney World and saw Captain Dude, I EO. Dude, I, I went to Epcot Center yes. in Orlando, yes. and I saw Captain EO. Me too. Yes. So he's doing this around this time. 1985, this is what Jeff was getting at. We Are the World. He co-writes this song uh, along with um, Quincy Jones. Was it Quincy Jones? I can't remember now. But co-writes We Are the World. All these stars after the American Music Awards get together and record. Uh, they put up a giant sign on the door that says, leave your ego at the door, which apparently everyone but one person essentially 
um, was was able to sort of um, to agree to. And I can't remember which, who. I can't remember. I knew you were going to ask me that. I can't remember. Uh, there was someone that was a problem through the whole recording, and I can't remember who it was. I'll have to maybe next episode. I'll bring it back. I'm um, always amused that they invited Bob Dylan to sing on We Are the World, despite the fact that in 1984, five Bob Dylan had the worst voice on the planet. <laughs> we that, are that, that the him, world. He has become meme status now. Like on, you can see there's like three second clips now that have got millions of view views of him from we are the world just standing out of place looking odd like it is meme status worthy it's beautiful stuff it's beautiful it's, it's the only reason i like that song frankly is for bob dylan looking like a man out of time misplaced in the middle of this chorale of like 80s pop stars i of course love it because both huey lewis sings a lead uh, part and the news sing backing vocals on that's why i like we are the world so he, all this is, is taking place, and now he is preparing for the follow-up to Thriller, which sold enormous numbers. And there's a story that I read once that I, I can't find it again, but I know I read it, so I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that Michael Jackson had a sign on his mirror every morning. He'd wake up and see, see a sign that said 100 million. He wanted to sell 100 million copies of his next album, whatever it happened to be. And what it turned that out... That story is in the... That that story you just recited is in the bad documentary from okay. one of Jackson's uh, chauffeurs. So, it, so it's may, real. It, 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 it's good. So it's real. All right. And it ends up being bad. 1987, five years after Thriller comes out, you have bad. Eight of the 11 songs here are singles in some part of the world or another. It is massive it is huge there is another strategic rollout as to which single is released first uh guys how do you begin to discuss bad the album in relation to thriller the album and how michael jackson found a way to follow up thriller with that album that while did not sell quite as much as thriller nothing did still was an absolute blockbuster around the world and across this country start by saying that, that Bad to me is an album where 
there are several songs on it that are just absolute, like out of the ballpark level home runs. Like you know, five. I mean, you think of you, the title track. You think of like the way you make me feel, Dirty Diana, Leave Me Alone, Smooth Criminal, you know, etc. Uh, just absolute giant, massive tracks. And then the rest of the songs in this album are like watching Bugs Bunny strike out the gas house gorillas in that famous, you know, Looney Tunes short where like they whiff three times before the ball has gone past because he's throwing them in a slow pitch. There is a striking for the first time contrast between stuff that seemed very clearly to be designed to be like chart topping monster awesomeness. And then there's Liberian Girl, <laughs> or like Just Good Friends. Another part of me, there's a very weak section on the first half of this record. It starts with bad. Well, and you don't, you don't like Liberian Girl? Oh no, I do not. I do not. I do not uh. like. I do not like. I do not like the, from the first two songs, which are classics. Then it's just like a very fallow period until you get into the Man in the Mirror. And I don't actually like Just Can't Stop Loving You, which was a single and was successful, but it's never really done a thing for me. You know- Daniel, uh, okay. Let the record show that this man likes the girl is mine, but not I can't that... stop loving you. Yes. And my girl. <laughs> like, let the record show how wrong this man is. Uh, now, I, well, I, let the record show that this man is a Paul McCartney stand till the day he dies. Okay, I, guess I can't help myself. I, something I learned in recently, uh, relearned, uh, rewatch again. Speaking of Spike Lee documentaries, if people are interested in this, you know, you've got two hours of good goodness with the um spikely bad 25 documentary which is full of interesting tidbits apparently this was going to be called smooth criminal at first but they were worried about the image that would send um i think smooth criminal might have been a better uh better album name but you know whatever um i i would say i, I we talked a little bit this on our uh, pre-game chat definitely you know off the wall has that kind of raw creativity that comes together to make that album and thriller is definitely a lot more there is a kind of clinicalness to it to like trying to make a monster hit out of thriller bad i think you get like a laboratory science team in together and what's interesting is learning that there were multiple teams Mm -hmm. who were competing with one another trying to outdo one another and i think again it kind of goes with what you were saying before um about what you were saying before about uh you know there's just so many monster hits on this damn thing um i i think it is a little bit incohesive at times because you know they're all they're and i'll this it lacks a consistency, I think. Um, they're all trying to hit home runs. Um, for me, like, Bad is great. The Way You Make Me Feel is fantastic. 
I love Liberian Girl. Man in the Mirror, I think um, it hits me when it, when I'm in the mood for Man in the Mirror. It hits me. I adore. It's I can't prob- stop It's you. probably his best ballad. I think. I even though it's like so on the nose, like I'm gonna make a change in the world. That yeah. Kind of thing. But I don't care. He sings it so sincerely. I love it so much. Well, this much. is like com- compared to what's gonna come with like social justice world activism michael jackson heal the world michael jackson yeah yeah right. yeah he, yeah because we know that's coming I heard the cover of Smooth Criminal before I heard Michael Jackson's. The Alien uh, Ant Farm version of it? I, that's how young I am, kids. Like, yeah, like I heard that first. Um, and so I've never heard it since, but you still hear Jackson's. Dirty Diana is phenomenal. It still lives up. It, it's like got this like real roar metal, um, hard rock <clears throat> speed to it. Um, leave me alone the self-awareness is hard to miss and it hits differently these days um what's weird is like it's one of the the way i would put it is like this i love some of the tracks on bad but i don't love bad the album it, it, the sums are better than the the whole part if thriller were the sound of uh, of crafting an album that you that you hoped everyone would love and would not repel anyone, which is kind of what I explained. To me, bad is the sound of trying to craft an album that everyone will buy, and it's different. And I think it's some. That's kind such of, a good way of put. That's such a good way of putting it. It's the artistic element that's missing. They're trying to make great songs on Thriller. On bad, they're trying to sell albums by making good songs or trying to make songs that are good enough to to appeal to certain segments that's the difference for me great trying to make great songs on thriller trying to sell a lot of albums on bad and but you can't sell a lot of albums without good songs so they are here but it's it's just different the artistic element of it hits differently for me um by the way i just want to point out this is when you michael jackson's sort of moniker as the king of pop was you know really kind of you know becoming full flower and i think that's telling because you know you know you know he wasn't the king of pop when thriller came out it was only in the mid 80s that he sort of adopted that that became part of the hype machine Mm -hmm. but you can't be the king of pop unless you're selling to a popular audience and if you become obsessed with that and if you chase every single demographic and every trend what is more than likely than not to happen is you're going to lose a sense of coherence and cohesiveness. And I agree with you, Scott, that, that, that that's what this is, is it, bad. There's so many great songs on this, but as an album, 
I mean, it, you know, it still works for me because it begins great and it ends great. But there is just there's there's slab, and that's the first time I'll say that. Um, some of the bigger songs here I don't necessarily love, and I don't know if that's just because they are so you know overpriced, right? I don't love the way you make me feel. I don't love no Scott. I, I know heresy. I don't love Dirty Diana even. Um, but the ones I, I oh do... my double heresy. <laughs> the you know what I... I love the most about Dirty Diana is that I was when I was like ten years old, I thought it was written about Princess Die. <laughs> I was like, why is Michael Jackson ranking on Princess Die? Uh, it's one of those Did funny you hear things. That she was she was upset that she didn't he didn't play it when yeah, he no. performed in the UK. Well, he oh, did. It's funny. I, I thought he did after she requested he play it. He wasn't going to. Maybe I have the story backwards. I thought he was. He no, wasn't. no, he um because the um, prince the um, prince uh, is it Philip uh, prince um, uh, goes up to him and thanks him for for not playing okay. for being respectful. Okay, and Diana follows up and says, "I wish you played. It's my favorite." <laughs> okay. She said I have to go home because I'm retired. You see, now I hear sleeping alone. Why don't you come with me? I send my babies at home. She's probably worried tonight. I didn't call on the phone to say that I'm all right. Diana, what? generational things because like you know you talk about generations in terms of naming like you know my mom's generation everyone was named mary including my mom mary maria or some variety thereof no one's named mary anymore similarly you know if you're an african-american in the late 60s or 70s diana ross is the biggest thing on the planet hmm. everyone's named diana but nobody and i literally went through like, like elementary school kindergarten middle school I never met a single person named Diana. So who's the only Diana that Michael could have been referring to? Well, it's that hussy princess guy. <laughs> uh, I'm bad. First track on, on, on the album. The second number one song on this album. There are, there are what, five? Five total number ones here. Uh, yeah. Bad. What do, I want to say two things about bad. Everyone knows bad. Again, the this, this short film, uh, video, uh, that Martin Scorsese directs. There are two things about that. One is... Uh, Jimmy Smith, Jimmy freaking Smith is playing organ on here. The B3 <laughs> Hammond legend. I love his parts on Bad. The other great story about Bad, and uh, I credit uh, uh, Tom Brian for this again from, from his number ones, is Michael Jackson wanted Bad to be a duet with Prince. He essentially wanted to to sort of do things on his terms with the other creative artist who could match him uh, at, at the pop music level and so they had this meeting it was a very awkward meeting between michael jackson and prince as you might imagine and uh <laughs> two of the weirdest people right. on the planet <laughs> and i guess i guess later on prince had sort of said well here's here's the big problem with with trying to sing bad as a duet because what's the first line of bad your butt your is butt mine. is mine and prince says who sings that because you are not singing that to me and there is no way in hell that I'm singing that to you. So that was his big problem with trying to do bad as a duet. Uh, 
later on. I, I Jeff doesn't like uh, another part of me. I really like another part of me, which kind of uh, predates or is, is right at the very beginning of kind of that new Jack swing style, uh, Bobby Brown, things like that. I really like it. And that's one of those other phrases that only Michael says. Like, it's not another part of me. If you hear it, it's another part. It's just this weird phrasing of that word. Uh, but it's got a great melody. I like that song quite a bit. And then Probably my favorite song on the album is Smooth Criminal. That is a great, great song. That bass line. There's an old story about um, uh, Gonna Raise Hell from Cheap Trick. Uh, they wanted to get the, 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 the drum really thick. And so they actually took out a couple of two-by-fours and smacked them together in the studio to get the sound they wanted. That's what it sounds like on Smooth Criminal, too. Just this, this, this cracking, snapping uh, on the percussion on Smooth Criminal. It is. But the thing about Smooth Criminal is that there's also a genius to the chorus. Mm -hmm. Because it has nothing to do with either the concept of being a smooth criminal or anything else. It's just one of these naggingly repetitive phrases that <laughs> I have for 30 friggin' years walked around with in my head. Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? Annie, are you okay? Why? Who is Annie? Why should she be okay? Is she threatened? Is somebody hurting her? Has she been kidnapped? I don't know. No one ever explains this in the song. But all you'll ever think of when you think of smooth criminals, Annie, are you okay? Or if you were like nine years old, like I was, uh, you will also think of it playing the uh, arcade game Moonwalker. <laughs> they made a Michael Jackson game, folks, yes. out of uh, uh, <laughs> for the arcades, and they also like ported it to the Sega Genesis too. This is where Michael Jackson saves the children. <laughs> <laughs> been abducted and like it's, it's of course the music is all set to michael jackson songs but one of the most ever present ones is smooth criminal and i just don't know any are you okay as i'm like kicking thugs and saving children <laughs> is one of those, those images that will never be erased from my mind <laughs> One more point on Smooth Criminal is that, well, of course, that bass line is unforgettable. But you think about the greatest moments on Thriller, most of them uh, be, are, are, are sort of the smoothie, soul, uh, uh, 
not hard-edged, right? And you get Smooth Criminal, which, again, I think is the best song here. But it's it's not great because it's kind of smooth and pop. It's great because it's hard and abrasive and staccato. Even those words, right? The way he sort of clips off. And are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, and, and the percussion just cuts through everything in that song. It's a different style of writing, which is going to continue very much so, I think, on the, the next Michael Jackson album, what, four, four years after this? It's very hard for me to choose, but it could be his best ever song, the Smooth Criminal. Uh, also, by the way, I want to point out that this is the uh, the great birth of everyone's favorite Michael Jackson phrase, Shamo! <laughs> uh, and here's a trivia question. How many songs on Bad does the phrase Shamo appear on? Does anyone know? One. One no, no, that is incorrect. Uh, three. Three is the answer. Wow, it that, appears that was on a, Smooth Criminal. Yes, I did not know. It appears on Smooth Criminal. It appears on Bad. And I th- I'm pretty sure it's on Dirty Diana as well. And, of course, it means nothing. It's just it's just sounds. It's phonemes. Shamo. Uh, it's, like, almost amazing that he could get away with just, like, throwing in this big emphasized word. It's not like a, you know, like, like a little hiccup in the background. It's, I'm bad, shamo. Right? It's there, and you are just left to guess what the hell it might mean. And of course the answer is, it means nothing, but it sounds cool. And I respect Michael Jackson so much for being able to say to himself, you know what, the people will get it. It doesn't mean a thing, but it sounds cool. That, of course, brings us to, gosh, what happens between 1988 and 1991, which is the gap of time that we have to cover between bad and dangerous. Now, I will say this much, you know, having grown up in the 80s, the same way Scott did with Michael Jackson, everything up until this point was just, again, part of your bloodstream. It was just injected to you. When you went to get your shots from the doctor, they also injected, you know, smooth criminal into your veins. Like, you just had this stuff flowing through your brain. It was only when I started turning 11 or 12, you know, starting along that first awkward, gawky journey of adolescence that I started to differentiate. And so, well, what is it I like or I don't like? And I still hadn't really figured anything out yet. But that is the point at which Dangerous lands. And the funny thing is that that is the first point at which I began to think to myself, I don't know, I think he's kind of losing it for me. Um, and that isn't really a commentary on the quality of the music. But as a, you know, a sort of a personal recollection, that's the moment where I remember thinking there were three or four songs in this album that you would hear on the radio every day that I loved. And I'm not going to lie, Black or White, fantastic song to this day. Jam, I love it. Dude, I even, I made fun of it uh, like three times already before we got to this point. I kind of like Heal the World. All right. I know, it's so, it makes you want to literally stuff an ostrich feather down your throat and vomit, right? But there's <laughs> something about it, I don't know. Maybe I, I liked Free Willy, <laughs> I don't know. But the point is that this is where there is a second big change in the Michael Jackson discography. So who wants to tackle Dangerous? Daniel, I know this is one of your favorites. Lead us off here. 
Yeah, so Dangerous comes out 1991. Um, for my money, I think it is easily the best cover art. Just going to throw out that throw that out there in terms of appreciating Jackson's cover art. Um, I, from what I understand, and you've already alluded to it before, uh, Jeff, this album for, on its debut is quite di- uh, device, uh, di- device uh, if I can pronounce it. Um, <clears throat> it is quite divisive, um, mixed reviews. Um, what's interesting from what I understand is there's been a bit of a, appreciate, a reappraisal of it in recent years, um, particularly Kanye West seems to be a real champion of it, which is quite striking. In, for my own money, I think what is most striking about Dangerous is I think it's mature. I think it's romantic. I think it's got a sexual energy that isn't on the previous albums. And for me, the word that captures dangerous more than anything is confidence. I think there is a confidence to the songs being produced, um, written and sung that isn't on the other, on some of the earlier stuff. Jam, I think is fantastic. Uh, Why you want to trip on me for my money though, the showstopper of this, is in the closet. I think in the closet, I mean, hands down in the closet will be in my top five. I think this is one of the most raw. I mean, this is baby making music. If I've ever heard it, <laughs> um, it is just the way it transitions, the way it starts slow. And then like when the drums um, and the bass kicks in, there's something about you, baby like that. It, it's just so unexpected the way, you know, and then it goes, and the 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 bass dropping the remixing the sound mixing A, a fantastic romantic song as well. Um, Can't let her get away. Black or white. For me, there's just like there's a real, like I was saying before about she's out of my life. This is when he should have sung this. Maybe like I feel because of um, you know it, it's Michael Jackson um, at a kind of um, manhood. I think that is just fascinating to be- behold. Heal the world. I agree. I'm very mixed on it. it, it it's it's pretty cringy, but it's catchy, which, you know, it's not all cringy stuff is that catchy, you know? Um, and, uh, who is it? It hits, it hits pretty hard for me. Dangerous is, it, it's going to be in my top. It's going to be in my top two. I think. Do you remember how we used to talk? No, we stayed on the phone at night till dawn. Do you remember all the things we said? Those special times, the go on and on, end up 
basically one thing that can always be said for any artist in any genre at any time in the entire 20th or 21st century is don't include a spoken word intro to your song, especially if it involves small children, which is why Heal the World <laughs> is a good ballad, but it's so hard for people to get past that open, like, this is little kids saying, we have to save the world, and all that crap. It just makes you want to roll your eyes and click next. I will say this. my my uh, First of all, Jam is a great song. And, and there's just... My, biggest objection to dangerous is that the drum rhythms the, the the beats are too generic and they're too they're they're too similar to one another like the first five songs it's all like boom boom well it's insane part, same, part of that is well, part of that is production right and we should, we should mention Qu quincy jones is gone here michael jackson is yes set. and this is the first time this is one of the points i want to make this is the first time it feels to me that michael jackson <clears> is chasing chasing the scene as opposed to setting the scene and he's chasing the dragon right, he, right instead of like being got, on top of it. you've got public enemy you've got janet jackson's rhythm nation that comes out in, in between these albums he tries to get jimmy jam and and uh terry lewis to produce this album they won't because they're, they're loyal to janet because teddy riley instead who's 23 years old to produce this album and most of the first half of dangerous is the Teddy Riley tracks. Most of the and back half is kind of the more rhythm. schlocky stuff, the Will You Be There. And, but the first half is Teddy Riley, which is why it might be a little monochromatic for Jeff. Yeah, it's exactly right. And, and, and I have to say, the best song on the album has that same kind of monochromatic beat. And, of course, that's black or white. This is a song where, okay, Scott, you were there, I was there. Uh, my memory is that it came on after like an episode of The Simpsons on Fox, uh, and then there was Michael Jackson looking a lot whiter than he used to be, um, <laughs> you know, in a in a in a uh, sort of a Hollywood alley, uh, you know, like smashing cars and stuff like that, and everyone was dancing. But then the music video itself and the music uh, still got me. I must have been like I was in middle school, maybe, maybe eleven. Early yeah, I was in middle school then. Uh, I remember going over to my friend John's house, and we would just be like dancing around like like little monkeys, you know, like like you know, if you thinking about my baby, I don't care if you are black or white. And it's a very canny pop construction. That's what needs to be pointed out. It is. It's it's sort of when Michael Jackson recorded "Beat It." This is a famous anecdote. He said like, well, "Why did you do that?" Is it he was very he's frank about it, and I respected them for saying this. He, he said, like, I, I wanted to appeal to a rock audience, but the fact of the matter is, it's like, I don't really like rock music. So, because, um, you know, that makes sense. He grew up in a soul and R&B background, Motown. Uh, so I wanted to come up with a rock song that I could get behind. Black and White has that like, that famous guitar of, it's not rock, though. It's pop, and it has that, 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 you know, that that sort of almost synthetic sounding beat but here's the funny thing about black and white there was an entire trend in the mid 90s uh, that is incredibly regrettable of pop songs not hip-hop songs but pop songs having these little rap breaks in the middle i don't know who the guy is who's who's like you know dropping his beats down on black and white is but that's heavy d right yeah that's heavy well, d it's the only one I've ever liked, and I still know it, man. I still know it word for word. You know, uh, you know, like 
It's not about races, just places, faces. It's where your blood comes from, it's where your space is. I've seen the bright get duller. I'm not gonna spend my life being a color. And then bam, Michael comes right back. Don't tell you agree with me when I saw you kicking dirt in my eye. Uh, that's pop masterpiece. That's pop mastery. That is the song that demonstrated that even if, in the, in my opinion at least, the album is still, it's, it's not as good as, as Bad or certainly as Thriller or Off the Wall, that one song, man, and maybe it is my childhood playing a role, that song will never die. I love it to death. Protection for gangs, clubs, and nations Causing grief in human relations It's a turf war on a global scale I'd rather hear both sides of the tale See, it's not about races, just places, faces Where your blood comes from is where your space is I've seen the bright get dull I'm not gonna spend my life being a color Do you agree with me When I saw you kicking dirt in my eye? I have the advantage that I get to come to Dangerous as a complete product within Jackson's discography because I'm a latecomer. Um, and because I know I, I got to listen to all these albums almost at once, Dangerous really stands out to me. Where you guys, being older, have the problem, oh my God, off the wall. Oh my God, Thriller. Oh my God, Bad. Oh, Dangerous isn't really, it doesn't live up to my expectations where I didn't really have that. So maybe I have that advantage. What I'm really interested from your guys' perspectives, because you're in this a lot. Um, yeah, this has been described as Jackson's blackest album as well, uh, particularly in both the production, the style, um, Naomi Campbell um, uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the music video, for example, what do you guys make of that assessment of, which is interesting because he's also, quote unquote looking whiter as well as a statement uh, well not as a statement i mean but like the state the statement the album is making i'll let scott you know throw his, his two cents in here but i i guess maybe some of the reason that i think that people describe it as his blackest album which i think is ridiculous off the wall clearly this <laughs> is blackest album it's straight up disco that is urban african-american disco music right um but you know dangerous is trend chasing mm -hmm. and this is a point that scott just pointed out you know, you know so you get a new producer you're gonna get a hit producer you're gonna go for like what is what is new now and of course you know this is all set in the background i think inevitably i'll, I'll talk about this later because I think I'll talk about this when we come to history. This is all set in the you know the, the sort of looming tsunami of grunge that is going to wipe so much of pop away for at least temporarily. 
you know, in the near time future. But yeah, I think it, it, the reason that people describe it like that is because it has like a lot of those trendy rhythm sounds. It still has Michael's vocals and it has his melodies and his, you know, you know, not only his own compositions, but when he works with other songwriters or he chooses their songs, he knows quality when he sees it. Um, but yeah, it, it to me, it just actually to me says early night. There are ways to get there if you care enough for the living. Make a little space, make a better place, heal the world. Yeah, only to the extent to which he's trying to meld himself to the the, the the style of the times. And again, this is, you know, post sort of Bobby Brown, Belle Bib DeVoe, New Jack Swing. There are more black artists that are heading to the top of the charts. Janet Jackson gets to the top of the charts. So that, that style is attractive to him. He... He knows it moves units. And this is one of those times when, yes, he has his eyes sort of toward becoming relevant in this new decade of music. That's... Do you remember that time, that, that time, Scott? I don't know if you felt the same way about it that I did. There was like a solid three or four year period there where it was Janet Jackson who was far more oh, yeah. relevant yes, than yes. Michael. Absolutely. And yeah. and maybe even, maybe even post-dangerous. I mean, I, I don't know if at that time... This is really hard to say so many years later. But Janet was massive, massive. And, and I don't even know about, you know, how dangerous sort of compares to her level of fame and popularity around that time. They had to be fairly close, had to be fairly close after Rhythm Nation sold just a boatload of records and was still probably putting off singles around this time that Dangerous was coming out. So that, that's a big deal. Uh, you, you guys really have identified a lot of the things I wanted to talk about here. Uh, about Dangerous. It's not my favorite Michael Jackson album. Uh, it is, you know, some of the, the, the second half uh, stuff, Will You Be There and Keep the Faith and, and Gone Too Soon. This is, uh, I know Daniel's going to talk more perhaps about sort of the social aspect. There are songs here about the environment, clearly songs here about AIDS. Uh, the first half is, is, is Teddy Riley's production, so it's a little more uh, percussive. Uh, it's a little more dancey than the second half of things. There are a couple of tracks here I think work fairly well. One's called Give In To Me, which is yeah. It's 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 an interesting angle to take. It's it's one that that breaks away from that monochromatic uh rhythm section that Jeff mentioned earlier. It's different. Uh and in the last song on the album, which is the title track, uh, Michael's sort of whispering these these spoken not spoken word, but sort of whispering these spoken vocals using his he's done this right using his breathing as a percussive <laughs> instrument on that track i really like that too i felt taken lust strange inhumanity this girl was persuasive this girl could not trust the girl was bad the girl was dangerous i never knew but i was living in vain she called my
Jam and Jam. Jam, I think, is, is, is a really great song, uh, especially when you can hear those choruses. It really shines. I mean, that's Teddy Riley at his best. Yes. I and mean, that is, that, there's no denying it. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, on the whole, this, you know, it's CD era. Again, so we're talking about 14 songs in an hour and 16 minutes. If you carve oh. this down to thriller era, a thriller, thriller era length, you're probably talking about a better album. Yeah, Daniel, he has not been on the show 100 episodes. <laughs> but if he was, he would know that this is our constant complaint that the CD era seemed to ruin albums because there's something about like, you know, a 35 to 42 minute album or even like a Beach Boys level like 23 minute record. It's great. It's great for your attention span. But when you start expanding it to 55, 60 minutes, oh. It, it it's it never works. I don't. I can't think of any real example where it ever worked. Um, uh, which of course brings us to uh, a very long. Well, okay, you know, before I even talk about it, does anybody want to talk about the allegations? You know, the sexual, the child abuse allegations. I don't. I don't care about it. I mean, I care about it in the sense that if there are, you know, victims, I feel bad for them. I just don't know what to believe, frankly. I, I, I genuinely don't know what to believe. I think there is an equal possibility that Michael Jackson was actually like doing terrible things with small children. And there was the possibility that this guy was just a complete freaky weirdo who like, you know, had a pet orangutan and, you know, you know, like like it directed a theme park in his backyard because he wanted to remember innocence of childhood and people just sort of preyed upon him. I don't know. Right. And, I'll and, never know. And, and from that well, latter point of view, a, a weird guy who put himself in situations that a normal, mature adult would recognize as being problematic, right? That you would not want to, even if nothing untoward is happening, that's not no one's going to look at it that way, right? It, 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 does he understand all that? It's just, it's really hard to say. That's almost the part that makes me think that he didn't do it. Because how could you be self-aware enough to write songs like Leave Me Alone or like, you know, be, be an intelligent person and then actively go live this weirdo lifestyle? I don't know. And well, again, it, the more it, I get into it, the more I realize I'm just speculating pointlessly. Well, I, look, I, I've weighed into this because I grew up around it in a sense. Like, so one had to have an opinion because, it, it, you know, for a long time of my high school years, Michael Jackson was the butt of every single pedophile joke you heard on like stand-up comedics and things like that. I think it's important to say that, you know, there are many people like there are many people who claim to be victims of Michael Jackson, but jackson's family jackson's ex-wives and jackson himself denied all allegations so it's, right there it's like, not it's, only it's that a recipe are, for the... it's not just that but there are guys who, who who are famously victims of child hollywood sexual abuse who were hanging around michael jackson at the time who said like listen i got abused by a lot of other you bleep that out but michael jackson was not one of them like macaulay right, culkin yes. and Corey feldman you know, like, there are a lot of evil people in Hollywood, but he was actually just like a weird but nice guy. I don't know if it's true. I just don't know. But it's it it, it ho we have to address it, frankly, because it hovers over everything. You know, everything we post this era. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What I was gonna say, like the big the big clencher, because we have the 1993 
is the alleg- is the first real big allegation. Right. Um, and what Jackson under pressure um, pays off the family. Now, Jackson's side of the story is he regrets that later on, that he wishes he didn't pay them off. But um, basically, uh, he was he under legal under legal counsel from the record label. Um, he was told, throw money at the problem and it will go away. It yeah. never does, et, et cetera, It's an incredibly common legal approach from a lawyer. I, yeah. know, I know how it works, yeah. Um, but having said that, though, it as we've danced around it will it will sh- you know wacko jacko with him changing plastic surgery sleeping in glass tanks monkey neverland like that's been up in the air and definitely tinges his career this will fundamentally change his career i think it's impossible to ignore that it is because it not only changes his public perception but it changes the nature of his music oh, absolutely and I think for me, it changes it most clearly in the next album, or yes. is it a greatest hit set? But this is the moment where I remember. I have a crystal clear memory of walking through Borders. Remember Borders books? Yeah, that Borders was a thing great. back in the time. Yes, yes. Yeah, Borders was great. Uh, Borders, was, Borders was great. Borders was great. It, it does not exist anymore, but I remember when I was, it must have been 95, I guess. It was like freshman, sophomore year of high school. Um, it was a it wasn't an album. It wasn't a greatest hits collection. It wasn't a box set. It was all three. It was history, past, present, and future. And arrogant as he was, he called it book one. Never call and something li- part one if it's a greatest hits. Never do it. Never do it. It never works out. It, there's never a part <laughs> two. There is never a part two unless you're the Eagles. There is never a part two. Um, and the funniest thing about it is that I, I was like four it must have been 14 15 years old at the time and even then i looked at that cover and it was a big like a long box set at that time there's like a statue a metal statue of michael jackson and he's wearing like bandoleros around his shoulders with like bullets you know like you know with epaulets like mm-hmm. he's in the military garb and i was just like this is try hard it's like this is a guy who's losing his image and he's losing his grip, and he's losing his edge. He's losing his edge, like LCD sound system, right? Um, and that is the impression I get from it. If you are not confident enough in your newest album that you feel the need to release greatest hits alongside with it, mm-hmm. that's a bad sign. So everyone knows the first disc of this record because it's just stuff we've talked about already. But what about the second disc of history, which is his ninth record, but is weird and also just clearly bearing the scars of his tabloid whippings? It is really difficult to judge the music on this new uh, this new CD of music with history because it is so focused um, on the scandals. It is so focused on settling scores the way he sees them. It is so focused on calling out the media in just about every single song. The scandals permeate all the corners of this album of, of new music. Um, this time around, he talks about falsely accused me. 
Uh, Diaz is clearly an attack on the district attorney who brought the case mm-hmm. against him in that in that 1993 case. He's got a song about uh, everyone wants. There's to... a song called Tabloid Junkie. Tabloid Junkie. You don't, you don't even called... explain it. The yep. title says everything. Song called Money. Other people well, want to get a hold of his money. And Tabloid Junkie. Tabloid Junkie utilizes audio from news media, literally from the news talking about him as well. Right. Like it actually copies and pastes it. Yeah. There's uh, You Are Not Alone, a song written by R. Kelly and sung by Michael Jackson, which could be a uh, dissertation R- R- about R- it. R. Kelly, who would later... Yes. I think that was like two days ago, he just got sentenced to prison. Yeah. Like, oh, jeez. There are two, song, oh, no. two songs I'll highlight here and then turn things over. One is Scream. This, is, this was the, the, the lead single. This is a duet with Janet Jackson, although by this point their voices sound nearly identical. Right. Uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis do come in and produce this th- to help Janet Jackson out, and it is as good as it should be uh, when you consider all the talent involved. It is perhaps his best, I don't know if we say Dangerous is kind of the end of his mid-career, right? This is his best late career song, I think, period. Scream's a really great song. It's herky-jerky, push-pull rhythm to it. Uh, Michael's pissed off at the tabloids. Leave me alone. Makes me want to scream. Is this the first profanity in a Michael Jackson song? When he says, Stop. "Yeah, I mean, I think it is," and then he follows it up with uh, a uh, unintentional racial slur in the next song, right? Which is the other one I want to talk about because uh, they don't care about us. Is, uh, is is the next song where he's you know he's he's, he's got you know Jewish slurs in in, in the lyrics. Jumi sumi, right? right. Yeah, that's hit, the line. hit me, kick me, but you'll never get me. The thing about they don't care about us is I think that backing track is really great that's an awesome backing track with the lyrics like where's the quality control Producers on that. Do you happen to have it at your fingertips? I, uh, I can look it up. That's it's not like a, a Riley thing, is it? Because I have I to say, because if so. it is, 
Okay, well, maybe that explains it because it's so much better than everything on Dangerous. Um, that is just you know a massive wallop to the head level skull thumping uh, uh, rhythm track. Michael and, Michael Jackson is listed as producer for They Don't Care About Us. Huh, well, there you go. Again, this is this is all very personal music, and that of course infects it and maybe poisons it in some way. Um, I'm just going to point history's out history is the only one he produces by himself. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. Well, then there you go. I'm going to just point out something. Uh, this, of course, They Don't Care About Us was the occasion of a, a very famous scandal back in the day, um, where you know you know there's that line you know Jumi Sumi beat me, kick me, and, uh, you know, like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Is that anti-Semitic? And, of course, he immediately denied it. I'm going to just be up front with you folks. I have family that comes from India. My entire mother's side of the family comes from India. And the phrase, Jew you, don't Jew me down, like it or not, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, was very common parlance. And I'm sure it was common parlance, you know, in Gary, Indiana as well. All right. And what does it mean? It means you know, basically don't be a cheapskate. Don't nickel and dime me. Don't be bad to me. Uh, there's nothing good about that. I'm just telling you that's the way people spoke back then. And that is almost 100% certainly the, where that line came from. You know, just like, you know, stuff he heard in his childhood living in Indiana because that was common phraseology back then so of course he had to do a lot of back and fill because michael jackson's not was not an anti-semite he's not a racist or anything like that he's just pulling like you know slang out of like the back of his mind you know language that he knew uh he really should have gotten someone to reread those lyrics before he did it because that is at the time you know if you were growing up in indiana in the 50s 60s or 70s nobody would have batted an eyelash in 1995, uh, no, and certainly from that point onwards. And it's one of those shames. It's you know when we did our Guns N' Roses episode, uh, Scott, I talked about how one in a million, mm-hmm. which is actually worse, far worse, because it's intentionally racist. Right. Like Axel Rose could have said, like I was just playing a character, but he was just like, no, this is the way I believe. He was just, he was just like a jerk. He's just a racist bastard. Um, but that's like a beautiful, like musical like song the recording is great the melody is great i love it and then those words ruin it for me um they don't care about us has that like little blemish on it that it's always going to stick to it and i actually want to speak by the way axel rose also from indiana I might point out <laughs> indiana has this sort of like interesting phenomenon of spawning these pop stars who do these things um they don't care about us i think it's far more a case it's just like overheard slang from childhood and he never should have put it in the song and it never should have passed like you know whatever sort of like you know checkers or people they had in quality control yeah that is an issue for me but uh it's just again it's like one of those things you just can't avoid addressing so i i struggle with this album because it's the only michael jackson album my parents owned um, and we would only listen to the first CD, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, very rarely did they listen to the second half. Scream, I think, is great as well. Stranger in Moscow does resonate with me as a kind of a slow burn. That's um, a good song on the album. <laughs> That's a yeah, good song on the album it, by it, far, it, in my opinion. Fear abandoning my fame. I'm getting 
does does pull at my heartstrings. I again, you know, Jackson's ability to weave together romantic power ballads is good. Now, in terms of paranoid, angry, pissed off at the world, Michael Jackson, I actually think Tabloid Junkie is better than Leave Me Alone. Mm. I, I, I there's a there's a rawness of tabloid junkie, particularly towards the climate. But when he's like building and building and building and like the, sh- the glass shatters, um, I-, I-, I think it's very effective. I think it's very raw. Um, and yeah, I-, I, li- I think it's the best of paranoid, angry Michael Jackson. In terms of DS, it's a pretty average song, but it's a pretty boss level FU move. You're um, right. It's what I would say. Um, probably in terms of the worst, my like Shaq rapping in Too Bad is awful. <laughs> his his this is the come point, together this is, cover. I have to point out this is the point where he was also starring in video games for the Super Nintendo called like Shaq. Yeah, and, and like like where he was like like a yeah. martial artist who also like could dunk a basketball. It was like it was it was a time in the nineties. You had to be there, Daniel. You had to be there. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean his cover his cover of Come Together is worse than Aerosmith's. Like it's terrible. Aerosmith. Um, yeah, this is actually. Credible, but this is terrible. no. I hate Aerosmith too. I think yeah. that's. I think that's no. I hate Aerosmith. I, 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 I called I, I, well. folks. I called it creditable. I did not <laughs> say it was great. Uh, no, uh, but honestly, I think the sleeper on this is the 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 outro tr- cover of Smile. It it suits the themes of yeah. what he's going for the best, um, and it 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 taps into his rawness and his emotional side and. You get you get a kind of glimpse of kind of classic Michael Jackson with his cover of Smile, I think. Um, so yeah, honestly, it's a pretty mediocre album with moments of greatness, but not much. So what comes next is, of course, six years of silence from 1995 to, I believe, 2001. And this, you know, again, sort of recounting my own personal journey, is the first point at which Michael Jackson has finally become personally invisible to me. And then, of course, ironically enough, what's the name of the album? You know, Grandiosity. You know, if you thought that the metal statue on history wasn't grandiose enough, well, he's called an album Invincible from 2001. And this is the first MJ album 
that absolutely made no impression upon me. Now, part of that is timing. I, this is I was 2001. I had you know, I was in the middle of college. I was a junior or senior in college, and I was listening to like Joy Division at that point. <laughs> so I was the last thing on my plate was going to be like pop played on the radio by Michael Jackson. Um, but this is the one that made zero impression on me at the time. And I've come back to it and I thought is actually, I have to give it credit. It's a bit futuristic. Like this is his last album prior to him dying. Um, um, the funny thing about it, it's like proto dubstep. I think this is a, an observation that Daniel made, uh, in our pre-show notes. Uh, and it, you know, coming to it for the first time doing this show, I don't love it, but I respect this one in a way I never expected to. What I said in the show notes, it's crazy how modern it sounds. The digital noises, the fast beat, the 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 computer generated um, audio, yeah, um, the early, yeah, the the fingerprints of dubstep or what will become dubstep. It, it's kind of weird. If I'm not mistaken, this at the time and maybe still is the most expensive album ever made. If I'm not mistaken, I had no idea. Uh, well, that's be. a shame because it certainly didn't sell as many units as Thriller. <laughs> I mean, wait, wait, how, how can any album cost more than like you know two million dollars? I just I, I have to go. I didn't Wikipedia all this. This is this is I'm flying blind here. Just you know all my musical impressions, but it doesn't sound super expensive. I think if I remember correctly, they're, they're, one of the reasons it's so expensive. He had different. I think Daniel mentioned with the last one that there were different groups of producers working on different yeah. songs in different places in different studios. That all adds up. Uh, and all get, they all get their percentage. That all adds right. up. This is, yeah, I, I agree with you guys in that it's it's thirty better. million dollars to make Whoa! this album. Thirty, thirty million dollars. Look, I, I could have made it so, for yeah, three million. It, it, <laughs> it's still the yeah. It is the most expensive album ever made to to date. <laughs> There's some really interesting things here, and it, it it makes me it makes me wish that we might have heard a little more open Michael Jackson at this point. Meaning, instead of trying to get back to number one, instead of trying to sell X number of albums, I mean, he be was, the king of pop, right? right yeah. Just make music that you like. Just make music. Um, that's not quite as bitter, not quite as uh, as on history, 
But what do you what do you what do you really want to hear? I don't know how much of that we get on Invincible. I think there is some of that though because it is a the, the music is a bit more open. It's a, it's a little more joyful in places, right? Than it has been the past few. I think we hear parts of it. I wish it would have went all the way. Don't well, worry about, joke selling... about history. That's the joke about history, right? Because like that, those were all really bitter and personal tracks. And mm. I and I thought about this like far too often. It's like he probably made the calculation, or maybe like his managers did. It's like you know, like this isn't going to sell because it's so nasty and unpleasant. So why don't you tack on all of the great stuff right. that you did during yeah. the '80s that everyone loves, and then you can get away with like the second disc of like angry bile. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Invincible does feel qualitatively different. There's there's some interesting stuff. I, I the first track, Unbreakable, is really good. I, I like yeah. that a lot. Um, Butterflies is a good song. The one note I have on Butterflies, and I don't know if you guys heard this either. Butterflies is the first time when I say, is his, is, is his voice starting to fail him? Is it the first time he's trying to make his voice do things? This this amazing instrument that he used as, you know, both a percussive instrument and we, we know how good he was on these ballads. It's the first time I try I hear him trying to make his voice do things that maybe it can't quite do anymore. about it because that's a physical reality of like being a singer as an adult right uh, something i've had to live through like when i was like 18 years old i could hit the stars now like i strain for the moon <laughs> like it, it, it just sucks like when you get older you lose the flexibility and it, 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 i'm just nobody and he's michael jackson to hear it happening to michael jackson of all people is actually a kind of a very humanizing moment. And so like when I hear him straining on those notes, it, it it actually works in a way. I don't know if that was what he intended, but it works for me a lot. I do remember to just point about this what kind of impact this album made. I do I do remember a build up around the single, right? What what's the first single going to be from the new Michael? I do remember a build up, but the response essentially was, "Oh, that's all right." You know, do Michael, it's okay. And uh, you rock my world is that song, and I think it probably deserved better. It's a better song, I think, than people maybe gave it credit for at the time. Despite again another spoken word introduction with uh, with Chris Tucker, in which M Michael Jackson and Chris <laughs> Tucker argue about who's going to get the girl. Uh, it's very, uh, but the song itself is pretty good. And Paul McCartney comes in and says, "No, the doggone girl is mine." <laughs> maybe it would have saved it. Uh. Um, but yeah, there, there are some really again, sixteen songs, an hour and twenty minutes. It's just, it's just unwieldy. Um, if you cut this down to a, a more manageable length, I think it, it stands up better. Although, as you guys both mentioned, there are a lot of nods here to 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 some song 
structures that we would see in, in the future. There's more here perhaps than meets the eye. They're still dealing with elements of paranoia and fame and controversy, but Unbreakable, uh, the triumphant note of Unbreakable, like uh, we often joke in academia, like what song is going to play after you defend your thesis. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Unbreakable might be mine. Like that might be a good, like, you know, you try <laughs> Unbreakable, like, you know, that might be what I go to when I crack Wait, you're not gonna go with Lee. You're not going to go with Leave Me Alone? No, no, because that's like such a bad. No, no, because no. it's gonna be like you—you you tried to, but you—you know—I'm unbreakable. Uh, you rock my world. I think it's such a good goddamn song. I—that's I, a groove. It's got that groove to it. Um, Break of Dawn. It's—I'm a sucker for Jackson romance songs. I think Break of Dawn. It's—it's a—it is one of the perfect balance between lustful and loving. It's almost like, you know, can't stop loving you and keep it in the closet had a baby. I think it, it again, it has this nice note of maturity to it, but still sensuality that I think is really great. Butterflies is fun. 2000 Watts almost feels like a 2000s boy band song, but I think it yes. works. Um, and you have my life by the, again. By the I, smallest margin, it just gets across. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. You're right about like the Backstreet Boys vibe to that song. Well, to me, it's the type of song you don't want to admit you like, but when it comes on, you kind of nod your head and yep. you know the words. Yep. Now I'm just wondering why you think that you can get to me with anything. Seems like you know but now when and how I've been down. And with all that I've been through, I'm still It's not the note you want Jackson's career to end on, but I'm kind of grateful it doesn't end on history to, at this point. Mm. Um, it's it's this when I return to Invincible after going through everything. It's actually it's actually come around for me. I think as an album, um, when I first heard it, I didn't love it, but the more I take it in the totality of his career, the more I think there are some genuine diamonds in the rough here. I, the thing about Invincible, as I said, is that you know it, it was the first Michael Jackson album to make absolutely no impression on me at all because I was you know in college and completely divorced from that scene. Um, this is important for me to relate. I uh, I think you know one of the things that swept MJ away from the top of the trends and the charts was that whole grunge revolution where all of a sudden. These are bands that we've covered on our show, you know, like Nirvana, Nevermind, and Pearl Jam, 10, and Versus. We're just like, you know, what the young kids wanted to, especially, particularly, because given Michael's, you know, obsession with conquering not just the black market, 
but you know, getting everyone in the world, you know, and in the country to like him. You know, what, what was white youth listening to in 1993? They were listening to Jeremy spoke in class today, and even flow and smells like Teen Spirit, or you know, maybe Soundgarden if they were like particularly hip. Uh, they weren't listening to MJ anymore after this, and so he left my life for a long time. And of course, you know, the tabloid stuff would pop up. I still, to this day, remember. It's a very kind of uh, uh, a poignant moment. I remember when the news came over the radio or Twitter, I can't remember what it was, or uh, when uh, Jackson died. This was his last album. Invincible was the last album he recorded before he passed away. He passed away, I think, from a drug overdose. I don't know if it was something fentanyl-like. I, I'm not sure what it was. I think the doctor ended up getting sentenced you know, for, you know, prescribing him dangerous narcotics. Um, well, of course, Jackson actually pursued a doctor who would, at this point, Jackson has basically been medicating himself for years. Mm -hmm. and he's, he's, yeah. yeah. And um, he actually is seeking out doctors like this guy to give him the goods he wants at this point. Right, right, exactly. Like, he knew what he wanted. And there was obviously a lot of trouble and a lot of pain and God only knows what else in his life. And my wife and I uh, have, of course, heard all the tabloid stories, known all the stuff. And nevertheless, I remember, I'll never forget, sitting there, um, the morning we woke up, Michael Jackson's dead, somebody, and the radio just starts playing like, you know, I want you back. And my wife just starts crying, you know, just a baby Michael, you know, this little kid didn't mean for it to end this way you know who knows why it had to happen this way you know all that but it was such a tragedy and then you go back and you look at the rehearsals for this is it which was the rehearsal the the the, the concert tour he was about to go on at the time and like, you know, he still had his moves you know he was still good you know he has voice he had his dance moves and just you know to think that it ends in this weird kind of you know almost cliched hollywood sunset boulevard tragic collapse um it's not the way it should have been and it's actually not the way that it was because we have two posthumous michael albums which i only discovered and i only listened to once we booked the show but i know that daniel knows a little bit more about than i certainly do so daniel do you want to talk about do you want to talk about like escape and do you want to talk about um what, what's the other one i michael's the other one yeah michael just michael so do you want to yeah. talk about these before we go i i mean they're pretty controversial still the the jackson estate and the producers that because apparently there is just a swath of material out there um from recordings on the cutting room floor to songs he tested out at different concerts so yeah th there is stuff out there there's more michael jackson stuff out there um so I, michael comes out first and it's the first because the first single this is it it's the only original song um which is basically a kind of memorial grace hits record so um yeah this is it there's a few other stuff that gets remixed Michael is the first album to come out that has all new material. Mm -hmm. Honestly, most of it, I think, is it's fine. Um, but I think Behind the Mask, again, going to kind of paranoia, tabloid-obsessed, uh, 
self-aware Michael Jackson. I think the reason why this song works for me is because it's not just angry at the media, but it's also if you get behind this mask, you'll see you'll see who I really am, or I'll see who you really are. It, it, it's there, there's this intimacy with it that I think really works. Escape, the next one, that, that the last one that's come out, and I think it came out in 2014, um, yeah. and nothing's come out since. Um, for me, like, a lot of it is pretty good, you know, um, but for me, Love Never Felt This, Love Never Felt So Good, I think that would have been a monster hit, in my opinion. Like, that, that is the song, I, 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 it's, it could very well be in my top 10 Jackson songs, even though it was never released. It just... It makes me love, like, I just beam listening to, it makes me think of my wife. It makes me want to dance. It it just, it makes me feel, it, it makes me, I feel like I'm tapping into old school Michael Jackson with that record. And a dark above mine, and I like you for me, for me. And the night is gonna be just fine. Gotta fly, gotta see, gotta be I can take it cause be there Every time I love you in all my life In all baby, tell me If you really love me in all my life In all baby, so baby I never felt so good Oh baby I, li- I listen to that song, and I, I listen to that song, and I think, like, where was this? You know, in the last yeah. like ten years, like that is a great song. Yeah. So th- for me, like, you know, Blue Gangster kind of feels like you know, left it. Like a lot of these songs feel like leftovers, and it does make me wonder if we'll if we will get new stuff because we know there is stuff out there, but is it kind of like, you know, are, are we digging up a corpse at this point for new material to to make money? I don't it's know. Like, it's like all those posthumous two. It's like all those posthumous two pack albums, right? And you're like, you know, like he yeah, like, yeah. Like said some words in the studio and they recorded it. And you're like, is that really a song? If they throw some beats on it, but Escape and particularly, yeah, Love Never Held So Good. That's a real song, and that I don't know. I guess I, I think that actually, it's it's if there is a happy ending to a story where the artist that we talked about died of a drug or do <laughs> drug overdose after sexual pedophilia allegations um that's a happy ending because that is a great late period michael jackson song scott did you listen to any of this stuff or did you just did not uh listen to a lot of it i I do know i've I've heard some of the i've heard some of the uh kind of extra tracks bonus tracks from the other uh from like thriller and bad era stuff the one thing i'd say is I, i don't love any of it and so I, I, uh, one of the reasons I didn't listen is just I wonder how much 
So much care was put into the tracks that ended up on those albums. And I don't know if that same amount of care is going to be able to be used with any of these tracks released post-death, whether it be the ones already out or the ones that are that might be coming down the road. Uh, you know, uh, they worked so hard on uh, on those tracks to get them in fighting shape to be included on those albums, and I, it's it's hard for me to think that if something were uh, were good enough to be included, it would not already have been used in some way, shape, or form. But yep. I'll go back and listen to these tracks that Daniel is recommending and see how they hold up. They're they're all good. The ones uh, you reference, I can guarantee you, they're they're actually the quality. Yeah, level. like w- when the when the chorus kicks in for love, like Timbaland uh, produced it. Um, but even just the raw audio, if you've listened to the demo of Love Never Felt So Good, it's so moving. But the way I the way Timbaland like produces the sound, like when you know, baby, every time I, like, it just like, eh, like the, there's a desperation there, like a longing, mm-hmm. and it 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 look through this episode. Clearly, I like romantic Michael Jackson, and this song just like hits it, it's it's it hits my sweet spot so well it does and by the way you know one last thing i'll point out is that one of the funny things if you doubted for any reason that michael jackson wasn't an actual original creator an artist in his own right that he was just some sort of puppet controlled by you know first of all the family the jackson five and then like like studio producers and all that go listen to his own home solo demo of beat it (laughs) <laughs> which I just got to tell you is the most hilarious thing. He's beatboxing the entire thing and, and just like literally overdubbing his rhythm after rhythm. Is He's like, he, he, he overdubs like seven vocals onto the thing. Uh, and it makes it clear that like, this isn't a song. I think he, he ran into some, there's a fun story, an anecdote where he, he was maybe talking to someone behind the stage at the Grammys and it was like, somebody asked him, some other rock star, was like, who actually wrote that song for you? He's like, I wrote it. I wrote it myself. And the guy was like, no, 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 I understand your name is on the credits and everything, but who wrote it? And he was like, no, you don't seem to understand. I wrote that myself. Um, and that's the, the mistake that is easily makeable yes. with a guy who yes. conquered the pop charts and worked with all these great producers. He wrote and a lot of his number one hits. He did it. He wrote, Michael Jackson he did, did it. Yeah, it, you know these songs are his. And 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 more than anything else, it needs to be pointed out the overall vision is exclusively his. From off the wall onwards, this is a guy who. Maybe you think he's wacko jacko, or maybe you think he's just, you know, the king of pop or whatever. He knew who he was. He knew who he wanted to be. He knew what he wanted to do and say. And, you know, he said it. And, you know, I honestly think it's just a genuine shame that uh, we're never going to get to hear any of that again. There is the Political Beats look at the music and career of Michael Jackson. We come to the point of the show where each of us give you the two uh, albums you must own, the five songs you really need to hear from our artist. We turn things back over to our guest today, Daniel Galata. Find him at the Age of Jackson podcast, writings all over the place. Uh, Daniel, your two albums and your five songs. Two albums, it's impossible, but I'm going to say Thriller because it's Thriller. And honestly, give Dangerous your time. Give it a shot. I think I, I honestly dangerous. I think 
is underappreciated. Um, so check it out. As for the tracks, um, Billie Jean, In the Closet, Dirty Diana, uh, Ben, and listen to the early recordings of Ben and his later recordings of it so you can really appreciate it. And as for the fifth one, my God, that's the tough one. I'm going to have to go with Don't Stop So You Get It Off. <laughs> uh, my, no shame in that. Yeah, my two albums are Off the Wall and Thriller. Uh, Song-wise, and we, we've talked about each and every one of these already in the program, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, uh, Off the Wall, the title track from that album, Billy Jean from Thriller, Wanna Be Starting Something from Thriller, and uh, finally the fifth track from Bad is Smooth Criminal. You know, for an artist that had so many number one hits and so many great songs, uh, it was not surprisingly easy, but I'd say surprisingly obvious to me which five tracks should go on that list. That was a that was a that was an okay. That was a comfortable selection, uh, at least this time. Uh, Jeff, over to you. Well, I, on the other hand, had the incredible and terrible problem of not being able to reduce it to five songs. So, you know, I'm the host. I get to just cheat you people like this. And so, I'm going to do a top five for Baby Michael, and then a top five for Adult Michael. By Baby Michael, I also mean the Jackson Five. And of course, what what do I mean when I mean Baby Michael? Well, of course, I mean songs like A, B, C, one, two, three. Or do I mean I Want You Back, which is actually the same exact song? I'm not sure. I think I'm going to go with ABC as one of them. And I guess I'll also, if we're talking about ballads from the Jackson 5 era, I'll be there. And in terms of silly, silly ballads, God, Ben, a song sitting, sung to a pet rat who murders people, but murders with love. <laughs> you know, he, he, he has a good point. He has a good heart. I, I love Ben. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's so stupid how I can hear, like, baby Michael singing uh, a really, really sincere song about a murderous rat. And I, you know, well, get the phantom tear. Um, gosh, it's hard. I'm going to say a song I didn't mention, uh, although I did mention it on an earlier uh, Patreon-only episode of our show, which is Someday at Christmas which is one of my favorite Christmas-themed songs of all time. We did a Christmas episode, favorite Christmas songs. Uh, the Jackson 5's version of Someday at Christmas with, uh, you, know, you know, baby Michael just singing in that beautiful, beautiful voice. Yeah, that's, that's a big one for me. And I guess uh, for the last baby Michael, but we're kind of moving into adolescent Michael at this point, it's going to be Shake Your Body, a uh, Jackson 5 song that just shows the, the transition after they had left uh, Motown, gone to Epic. Now they have the Motown. Now they have like the disco sound. Shake Your Body is is pure Michael, and the best possible example of that is what comes basically a year later on his debut adult solo album, Off the Wall, and that's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Uh, what the hell can I say? We've already talked enough about it. Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is is a basically the best song off of off the wall but man i could have also put on burn this disco out i guess i'm gonna have to go with beat it not only because beat it was a great song but it was also the inspiration for uh great videos that were made by artists other than michael jackson namely weird al yankovic's eat it where he uh wears the same orange jacket with permission from michael i might point out uh and talks about just like really enjoying uh, gorging on food uh, 
Billie Jean uh, from Thriller, yeah, you've got to acknowledge it. The Way You Make Me Feel, if I had to pick like a romantic ballad, Michael Jackson, there are slower, softer, gloopier ones. But God, The Way You Make Me Feel is one of those things where even the, the, the sort of cliched 80s production techniques that the bonka bumpa 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 of the bass lines big synth bass yeah the bad big synth <laughs> bass right like it should be dated and like that's the one song that just gets away with it and why because it's michael friggin jackson and then my last song is going to be one that scott mentioned smooth criminal that is so close to being the greatest thing that he ever did you know annie are you okay a nonsense chorus that makes n- it's nonsense and it makes every bit of sense in the world it's the one that you will literally like you're walking along the street you're tripping along like rough curbs and street corners and you're just singing to annie are you okay are you okay annie are you okay it is uh a brainworm in the best possible sense like you normally people don't want worms to enter their brains I invite Smooth Criminal into my mind every time it comes because it is one of the greatest pop songs of the entire 1980s. Political Beats look at Michael Jackson. We thank our guest, Daniel Galata, PhD candidate in American Religious History at Stanford University, completing his dissertation now on how religious politics influenced the rise of Andrew Jackson and the formation of the Democratic and Whig parties. His writings, The Washington Post, The Bulwark, The Hill, National Review, The Critic, other publications. Check out his podcast, too, The Age of Jackson, about Andrew, not Michael you can also find him on Twitter. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Political Beats. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. I had a blast. And uh, Jeff, we move on to uh, knock off, I believe next, uh, knock off one of your most desired bands coming up very soon. You know, we once used to keep these two-part episodes to the summer, but hey, you know what? We only have one life to live, so we're going to do it now. And uh, if you don't like that, well, then you can just go your own way. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. I'm there, too, at Scott Bertram. Remember, Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Support the show. Help it stay ad-free. Entry-level, mid-level, upper-level. All there. Uh, Patreon.com slash Political Beats. We thank all who have taken part. Now we come to the part of the show where we thank those who are supporting us currently via the Patreon page, Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Thank you, Neil Addison. Thank you, Lucas Haig, Mo Lane, Dominic DeLulo, Alex Conant, Pete, just Pete. Also, Ken Sararer, Matthew Murray, Dennis Hackinson, and longtime friend of the program, Carl. Thank you for supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. You can also find new episodes at 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in, subscribe to the feed, find them too at nationalreview.com. We're on Facebook. Join the conversation on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>